Hello, Galactic Castaways. This is Alpha Control, the podcast about Irwin Allen's classic sci-fi adventure TV series, Lost in Space. I am your mission controller for this podcast, Colonel Lane August, and I'm joined by my trusty co-controller, Dr. Kurt Kersteiner. Kurt and I are old college chums, children of the 1960s, and most importantly, big fans of Lost in Space. Welcome aboard as we blast off together to celebrate Erwin Allen's Lost in Space. Now, let's get ready to launch. Last week, as you recall, Will and Dr. Smith had climbed up to a plateau of cosmic dust to investigate a strange glowing light, little dreaming that it was soon to lead them on an unbelievable journey through space. I thought we'd never reach this plateau. That mountain must be 20,000 feet high at the very least. I could hardly breathe at that altitude. It's only 100 feet higher than the campsite, Dr. Smith. I checked it. Oh, then there must be something in the atmosphere that affects my asthma. Well, do you see it? No, but it's got to be around here somewhere. I remember that rock. Now tell me again, what did you actually see? Well, it was about sundown, and I saw something glinting. Never mind the glinting. Tell me about the colors. They were all silvery and gold. Ah, yes. Obviously an outcrop of a very rare and precious metal leading to a mother load. That's not what Dad thought when I told him about it. Just some iron pyrites. I guess that's all it is. Indeed. Your father's knowledge of geology leaves much to be desired. I'm a pretty good geologist. Of course you are, my boy. And you'll be a good deal better, Will, when we prove that what you saw confirms my own theory. Now climb up on that rock and see if you can locate it. Well, have you spotted it? Not yet. Can't you see anything? Well, I see the Jupiter. And there's Mom and Penny. They're doing the washing. Spare me the dreary domestic story. Look for that outcrop. What is it? Do you see it? I see it. Where? Where? Show me. It's over that way. You'd better be careful, Dr. Smith. Dad thought there might be cosmic dust pits on this plateau with no bottom. Nonsense, my boy. In the interests of science, one's personal safety is of no consequence. Ah! I knew it! I was right! It can't be anything else but... Welcome back, folks, to Alpha Control, a Lost in Space podcast. I'm Lane. And I'm Kurt. Kurt, today we're talking about the 28th broadcast episode of Lost in Space titled, A Change of Space. But sir, before we begin, I regret to announce that this very day I found a white hair on my head. I may not be able to continue. Do you have any suggestions, sir? (laughs) Yeah, uh, stop whining about it and be glad that it's white instead of falling out. You know, <laughs> unlike your Greek dad with his thick head of Mediterranean hair, my dad was bald, so I'm more worried about becoming Jean-Luc Picard instead of Dr. Zachary Smith. 
Uh, fair enough. Fair enough. It's always greener on the other side of the hill, isn't it? <laughs> oh, yeah. Well, a few production notes before we begin with the story. 59-year-old writer Peter Packer and 56-year-old director Soby Martin did pretty good work when they teamed up last on The Space Croppers. They got to do it again for this episode. This script, Packer's 10th for the series, was deemed solid enough by editor Tony Wilson that he didn't bother with his usual overall rewrite. Instead, he opted for a series of minor page revisions as notes came in from Irwin, The Network, and of course, Jonathan Harris. Even the censors at CBS weren't too critical of this story, their major concern being a couple of plot points they felt depicted Will being deliberately disobedient. Not like he's ever done that before. Yeah. (laughs) Well, that was a no-no during the 1960s at the Tiffany Network. But just wait, kids. The 1970s will be here before you know it, and CBS will go from stuffy to subversive, faster than the speed of light squared, with shows like All in the Family, The Jeffersons, Good Times, and Maud that regularly lampooned traditional family values. My, how the times did change, Kurt. Mm, Yeah. As J.J. would say, they blew up family values with dynamite. (laughs) Well, A Change of Space was Irwin Buddy Sobey Martin's eighth episode to direct. Despite his habit of falling asleep on the set and his reputation for a less-than-cinematic approach, being friends with the boss certainly helped Martin stay employed. He eventually directed 14 episodes of Lost in Space, 14 of Voyage to the Bottom of the Sea, 14 of Time Tunnel, and 21 of Land of the Giants. I guess it's true what they say, Kurt. It's not what you know, it's who you know. Yeah, or the Me Too movement version of that, which is it's not who you know, but who you blow. <laughs> <laughs> oh boy, here we already? <laughs> It's 2019, bro. (laughs) Well, this episode was shot from the 22nd through the 30th of March, 1966. That was seven days. And it aired on April 20th, 1966, and got a summer repeat on the 19th of August, 1966. All the regular characters are featured. But this week, instead of Dawson Palmer, wearing the alien Gilman suit was actor and stuntman Frank Graham. That had me worried Palmer might have made the same mistake Gene Polito did a couple of weeks ago and called in sick, because we know how Irwin deals with employees that missed work. They get replaced. Yeah. But the explanation is less sinister. Graham had just a couple of weeks earlier worn the very same monster costume on an episode of Voyage to the Bottom of the Sea titled The Menfish, which aired March 6th, 1966. So having Graham wear the suit again saved the producer time and expense of having it altered, for the six-foot, eight-inch-tall Palmer. Yeah, and who knows, uh, maybe Irving was also hoping to avoid having to pay him the uh, union scale. <laughs> <laughs> I like it. Well, Graham was known for playing cowboys or horse soldiers in several films starring John Wayne, who he also stunt-doubled for. In addition to The Menfish and this episode of Lost in Space, the actor also worked on two other episodes of Voyage to the Bottom of the Sea for Irwin Allen. Speaking of that recycled Gilman suit, in one quote from Bill Mooney that I saw online, the actor recalled that one of their sound stages was right next to the stage for Voyage, and one day a green sea monster man came through a corridor connecting the two stages and was met by some makeup people with a spray gun. They immediately hit him with brown paint as he turned around with his arms up to get total coverage. A few minutes later, he was on our set ready to shoot Lost in Space. Quoting Billy, he said, you really got to love Irwin. 
Yeah. Well, it may have been the color crap, but at least it wasn't silver or gold grease paint, so we could be glad about that. Yeah. They saved a little silver or gold that week. (laughs) Well, anyway, with that, let's get on with the story. The Act 1 teaser opens with a jittery Dr. Smith being helped down from some rocks onto an area of flat terrain by Will, as the narrator explains that our pair of castaways have climbed up to the top of a plateau to investigate a strange glowing light. Smith's convinced it must be an outcropping of a very rare and precious metal, leading to a mother load. Yeah, now keep in mind, it was only last week that Smith swore that he was turning over a new leaf and had learned the hard way that all that glitters is not gold. So he can't even make it through one episode without returning to his greedy, gold-digging ways. Because remember, the lost civilization occurred at the same time as all that glitters. So the last two episodes actually occurred simultaneously. Dude... If you want precious metal, just go back to the Valley of the Platinum Boulders that you made up when you touched Penny and turned her into metal, remember? Come on. Yeah, I hadn't thought about that. There's all the platinum you want out there, isn't there? (laughs) I guess old habits die hard. Yeah. Well, Will's doubtful about that being a mother load because Dad had told him sometime earlier that it was probably just worthless iron pyrite. Irked, Smith throws shade on the doubting Daddy's opinion, barking... Indeed. Your father's knowledge of geology leaves much to be desired. (laughs) Which is a scream because, as we all know, John's a PhD in geology. So, talk about chutzpah. Smith's so egotistical he's even out knowing it all, Professor. Know it all. Yeah, well, maybe he figures it takes a fraud to know a fraud. I don't know. (laughs) Well, Will counters, I'm a pretty good geologist. No, of course you are, my boy, and you'll be a good deal better when you prove that what you saw confirms my own theory. Now climb up on that rock and see if you can locate it. Will searches the horizon with his electro-binoculars, but at first, all he sees is the Jupiter. Giggling, he reports that Mom and Penny are doing the washing. Impatiently, Smith commands, Spare me the dreary domestic story. Look for that outcrop. Yeah, those poor pioneer women sure had it hard doing all that space laundry. They have to toss it into the machine and wait ten full seconds before it's clean, folded, and wrapped in plastic for them. You know, a woman's work is just never done. Mm. Scanning the horizon, suddenly our young space prospector does a double take, shouting, Golly! And we're shown a quick cut view through his binoculars. What is it? Do you see it? I see it! It's a bright, glowing light emerging from behind some giant mesa-like rock formations. Where, where? Show me! It's over that way! Desperate to catch sight of his treasure, the doctor snatches the glasses from the boy and glues them to his eyes. The binocular view of that distant glinting light has Smith totally mesmerized, but Will issues a timely warning. Hey, you better be careful, Dr. Smith. Dad thought there might be cosmic dust pits on this plateau with no bottom. Uh Uh-oh. Yeah, not just dust pits, but cosmic dust pits. Now that does sound deadly. (laughs) Ooh, scary kids. With the binocs still firmly planted on his eyeballs, the unworried Smith starts strutting forward towards the camera, Mr. Magoo style, with Will trailing a few steps behind. Nonsense, my boy. In the interest of science, one's personal safety is of no consequence. We cut next to a shot following behind our castaways, but after taking just a few more steps, the distracted doctor hesitates, screams in terror, 
<laughs> Tosses the binoculars aside, then falls head first into and is swallowed whole by a bottomless cosmic dust pit. Oh dear. In a flash, Will carefully races around the edge of the deadly sand trap, grabs a conveniently placed golf club-sized branch to use as a lifeline for Dr. Smith, who somehow already managed to poke his head up out of that sea of Cheerios. Hurry! Hurry, Will! Hurry! Smith works a hand free and manages to grasp a bush at the edge of the pit to keep from sinking back under forever. Hang on, Dr. Smith. This plant will give way at any moment. Bracing himself at the edge of the crater, Will stretches out the rescue limb to reach the frantic physician's other hand. Zachary catches hold of the branch, but his frenzied struggles aren't helping. If you panic, you'll just sink faster, so, so don't panic. Hyperventilating, Smith bellows, I'm not panicking! I'm not panicking! Just get me out of here! Using his full body weight for leverage and all the strength he can muster, Will does. After a couple more hair-raising moments, Dr. Smith is finally pulled free from the deadly, dusty depths. Oh, thank goodness. Oh, oh. If this plant hadn't been here, there's no telling how far down you might have dropped. That's why cosmic dust pits are so dangerous. Spare me the preachments. Help me up, my boy. Yeah, that was an exciting little scene, Kurt, but I wonder if the roles had been reversed and Will had fallen into that cosmic dust pit, how different would that scene have played out, do you think? Hmm, well, let's see. Now, Smith still would have panicked as he ran and screamed all the way back to the ship to safety. Uh, Oh, and maybe he might have even asked for help. I don't know. So I guess the answer to your question is it would have been pretty similar either way. Well, face smudged with cosmic dust, Smith asks the boy, Oh, thank goodness. What do we do now? We jump across it. Jump? Sure. Huh? I'm with Smith here. Why not just walk around the cosmic dust pit? Why do they have to jump across it? Yeah, or better yet, go home after your near-fatal brush with death, you know? Hey, speaking of brushes, did you notice how Smith's clothes are, like, totally clean after falling into the Cheerio pit, you know? Almost as if someone had brushed them all off. Only his face has any smudges on it, so maybe they have dirt-resistant clothes in the future. Mmm, that could be. Yeah, that was pretty obvious, wasn't it? (laughs) But it was also obvious, I didn't mention it before, that the guy that did the head-first fall into that pit was not Jonathan Harris. That was obviously his stunt (laughs) double. You couldn't even see the uh, famous back brace underneath the sweater there, so... Uh (laughs) (laughs) But I liked the way he paused, screamed, and then fell (laughs) head-first. into that dust pit. That was just so funny. What was it as you said last time, you know? Oh, what if I fall, slip, or trip, and I hurt my back? <laughs> they'll close the store. Uh. Well, for whatever reason, Will's determined to take the direct route and probes the pit's powdery surface with his trusty rescue branch. Confirming the danger zone isn't that wide, the boy picks up the binoculars and gets ready to jump. But Smith nervously cautions, Careful! It's not that tough. Just watch me. Will fearlessly vaults over the sinister sands, causing Smith to involuntarily... (laughs) Now it's Dr. Smith's turn. Come on, it's easy. Agility like youth is wasted on children. 
I cannot do it and I will not do it. Losing his patience, Will chides his cowering companion, Dr. Smith. No. Jump. (laughs) Calming himself, Zachary mops his face with a handkerchief. The things that I do in the interest of science. Now, my boy, let's not waste any more time on idle chatter. We must find that outcrop. Come along. With that, Smith shepherds Will out of the area to find the source of that silvery gold glow. Next, as this extended teaser draws to a close, we see Dr. Smith tromping around some boulders with Will following a few paces behind. You're lagging, Will. Where's your stamina? Still mopping his brow with his handkerchief, the pompous prospector pauses at the edge of a clearing. But instead of a mother load, we're shown a shot of some ordinary large pre-planet-style rock formations. Smith's face is filled with disbelief and then disdain. Will, look! It's just decomposing granite. It's not even shining. Fool's gold. Nothing but an optical illusion. But we must have seen something shining. Will presses ahead of the daunted doctor to investigate further. With the camera tracking along as they reach the other side of the rocks, the boys pause to take in an unexpected sight. Dr. Smith, look at this! It's a strange, yet vaguely familiar, spherical space pod, resting in a clearing a few yards ahead. Without waiting, Will marches closer to the curious artifact, which we now see is resting next to another weird device of similar size, but completely different design from the space pod. Wow, this is a bonus. We're not getting one, but two cool pieces of what I presume to be alien technology. But let me ask you, (laughs) Kurt, did that space pod ring any bells with you, sir? Oh, yes, the raft's craft. Only the metal door has been replaced with a bulbous plastic door. Those aliens are getting to be as cheap as Detroit, replacing all the quality steel parts with cheap plastic. And unless I'm mistaken, don't we see this ship again in Season 2 with Al Lewis and Rocket to Earth? It's very possible you might see it again. (laughs) Surprise, surprise, surprise. Yeah. Okay, so yes, we did see it in the raft, and it's actually also the diving bell from Voyage to the Bottom of the Sea, which viewers may or may not have noticed. I think you made a good point about not everybody was watching Voyage at the same time. But I have to say, I think Bob Kinoshita, the art director, did a much better job of disguising it this time with those uh, plexiglass white bubbles, and there's even like a little cone of plexiglass on the top. And Yeah, the construction cones. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Yeah, but it it is different enough. The last time they barely sprayed on some silver paint and put a few radiation symbols on it. So I I thought it worked out pretty well here. Now that other alien object was also pretty visually interesting, but it's never really explained as far as I know in this entire episode what its purpose is. Is it a spaceship or a shelter? doesn't really look like one because there's no sign of any cabins or hatches on it. It's just this circular platform supporting this unusual cluster of alien equipment. It's got some flashing lights, of course, and some power line insulators. And if you look carefully at the top of that machine, you might notice part of the water conversion unit or the deuteronium refinery prop that we've seen before. But because of its size and cone-like shape, I was calling it the space teepee when we were watching the episode at home. They're kind of interesting mashups of different parts and bits and pieces, but I thought these alien props were a fun surprise and 
Knowing Irwin, I'm sure Bob was given a tight budget to work with, so I'm all the more impressed with his creativity here. I was wowed by both those cool props, but I was also a little confused what the second device was as well, at least at first. But later on, they suggested it's a relay station. So the second craft is basically a homing beacon to tell the pilotless spaceships where to land. Ah, well, that does make sense. I do remember them saying, you know, a relay station. So I didn't exactly connect it with that. But that does seem obvious now that you say that. Okay, good. Well, the excitement in Will's voice gets Smith's attention, and he scurries up to rejoin the boy. Will thinks out loud, It's funny we never received any signals before. I wonder where it came from. Will starts to move closer to the alien machines, but the jittery Smith cautions, Don't get too close, Will. If it contaminates you, you'll contaminate me, and before you know it, it... it... Smith's speech is interrupted mid-sentence by the image of the space pod filling the frame as its double-bubble hatch slowly creeps open, accompanied by a shrill electronic siren. Now what? So many questions come to mind. Is that weird klaxon tone a greeting or a threat? And could there be a hostile alien hiding inside that space pod waiting to pounce on our castaways? You know, if that had been Smith or Penny, I wouldn't be that afraid because, you know, they're not going to get too close. But with Will, that open door is just bound to cause trouble. Mmm, good point. Well, this episode is off to an exciting start, but I guess we'll have to wait until after the main titles to get the answers to these and many other questions. So whatever you do, kids, don't touch that dial. Turn from the opening credits, we're still at the sandy clearing with a pair of mysterious alien devices. As the episode's title cards flash by, we can see that John, Marine, Don, and the robot have now joined our pair of intrepid prospectors and appear to be just as perplexed by these mechanisms as we are. At least that unearthly klaxon has stopped ringing. But as far as what or who might be inside that craft, that's still an open question because the hatch in the space pod is now closed. As the camera tracks in on our group of space pioneers, Professor Robinson paces back and forth, silently studying the machines from a few feet away. Dr. Smith, who's standing the farthest distance of all from the devices and using the robot as cover, breaks the silence, asserting with mock confidence, As you can plainly see, Will's urgent summons that you come here were really quite unnecessary. His having seen a precious metal was nothing but a mirage. He never said it was precious metal, Doctor. And that ship, that ship is certainly no mirage. Well, it's of no earthly use to me. Maureen asks, well, why does everything have to be of earthly use, Doctor? Don interjects, don't let him answer that one, or we'll be standing here for hours listening to the miseries of a galactic castaway. Major, you irk me. Ignoring Smith's rebuke, the Major wonders aloud what kind of guidance and propulsion system the little space pod has. Will says he got a quick look at it when the hatch was open. It's as compact as a protein pill. Don grins back at the clever boy. Well, that's really compact. Let's see what you make of this protein pill, robot. 
Cutting his eyes in Benign's direction, Smith scowls. And no involved polysyllabic jargon, if you please. Just simple basic facts that we can all understand. Design, guidance, and propulsion systems of extragalactic special delivery vehicle indicate unlimited thrust, scope, and speed. Will turns back to Mom. I wonder what it delivers. Marine glances over to John and jokes, Well, maybe extragalactic special delivery mail. <laughs> that earns a chuckle from Will and a wry smile from Dad. Apparently not getting the joke, our cybernetic friend explains, It does as such conform to a space relay station. Ah, there you go. Don asks B-9 to dig a little deeper. And Clara, you garrulous gargoyle. Space capability of vehicle. Subject to errors inherent in my limited extragalactic experience. May reach velocity of light squared. Both John and Don snap their heads around towards the robot. The professor scoffs. Squared? Why, that's impossible. Vehicle capable of circumnavigating the universe. The camera cuts to a close-up of Dr. Smith, who might be changing his mind about just what earthly uses this craft might provide. Space penetration is possible up to and including the sixth dimension. Oh, great. Now we're talking about the sixth dimension. What the heck is that? Well, the fifth dimension is a mathematical construct which may or may not exist. It was an effort to unify invisible forces of gravity and electromagnetism that we can't really observe, but we could observe their facts. However, it would be so tiny, it would be a 10 to the 33rd power centimeters, okay? Which we all know is barely enough space to fit in two mouthless aliens and one Will Robinson. So (laughs) all these other dimensions are theoretical, and therefore they're even more difficult to understand, let alone explain, because... They're unobservable, and they can feature different laws of physics than we're used to or that we experience, which is kind of the opposite of what we were raised to believe physics was all about. We were always told that the same physical laws apply everywhere in the universe, but now, thanks to the advent of string theory, they've created multiple possible universes, Mm. some of which came from the same Big Bang, but others that did not, and basically anything is possible, including time travel. Maybe not possible for us, but for subatomic particles. Then again, maybe it's like they told people in college when we were stoned. Man, that universe is like just a molecule in the fingernail of God, and you could have an entire other universe inside your fingernail, man, and not even know it, man. Mm. Which, you know, which makes picking your nose especially gross, but that aside. The point is that the farther physics evolves the more it sounds like a Lost in Space script, where they just make up the rules as they go along and conveniently forget everything they taught us in previous episodes. So let's not even try to make sense out of all this additional dimension stuff, because some theorists say that there's 10 dimensions, while others say there's 11, and some even say there's 26 different dimensions. And I just don't have that many aspirins. (laughs) Well, if it's hard for us to process this, it's equally hard for both John and Don to do that. Then, the robot pops up his bubble, extends his waving claws, and excitingly cautions, Warning! Unpredictable modifications in cell structure are a hazard of such multi-dimensional spaceflight. Ah, so once again we're seeing the robot use his arms as sensors. When he waves them around, he's scanning, just like he did in The Lost Civilization. But they should heed his warning about multi-dimensional spaceflight. They can wreak havoc on your cell structure, as we will soon find. 
Yeah, it's true, but it does make me wonder about how B9's computers are able to discern all this about these far-out alien machines. Kind of makes you wonder how he's so conversant in technology that's clearly light years ahead of 1997 Earth science. Yeah, or how he's able to translate languages that he's never heard of or no other Earthling has ever heard of, you know, but anyway. (laughs) Yep. Well, wearing a calculated expression, Smith stays silent, and for once, Professor Robinson also seems to be at a loss for words. All Don can offer is a confused grin as he nervously laughs. Wow, that's some pill. Agreeing, John suggests that until they know more about it, no one should get close to the alien craft. They'll bring out some special testing equipment in the morning, but for now, best they get back to camp. Will says, I'll be right there, Dad. And for some reason, Dad says without hesitation, All right. Yeah, like like Will's going to obey this time, huh? Mm-hmm. As the three adults walk out of frame, Will walks over to the far edge of the clearing to join Dr. Smith and his silver sidekick. With his trusty human shield, Will, close by, Smith takes a few cautious steps forward. Staring at the space pod, he opines, A remarkable vehicle. I wonder what else it can do. Well, if you know how to work it, it can get you wherever you want to go in nothing flat. Isn't that enough? Ample. That is, if I knew more about navigating it. Glancing in B-9's direction, the good doctor adopts a friendly grin and tone. Is it very complicated, my encyclopedic friend? Very compact. Tell me more. Its design is simplicity itself. Getting better all the time. How simple? What do you want from me? Blood? (laughs) (laughs) Well, Will can't help but laugh at the robot's wisecrack, but Smith is not amused. Marching over to the brassy booby side, the doctor bellows, Spare me the self-pity! Pointing towards the alien ship, he adds with a scowl. Now move in closer and let me have the answer. B-9 hears and silently obeys. At least he starts to, but after rolling forward only a couple of yards, he pauses long enough for Will to remind, Dr. Smith, Dad didn't want any of us getting too close. Looking at the robot with disdain, Smith barks, Is this scurrilous scatterbrain to be considered one of us? Indeed, he is not. He is here to obey my orders. Move! But the robot doesn't budge. I'm waiting. Me too. You cowardly clump. You're not close enough. Now advance and let yourself be recognized. Find out how it works. (laughs) Dr. Smith, I just don't think... Quiet, my boy. I'm in command here. Move! With the tension building and the music reaching a crescendo, the robot reluctantly rolls forward a little further. But just then... B-9 is halted by the strange sound of an angry, unseen voice bellowing in an unintelligible alien language. Startled, Smith and Will look around in confusion. What does he say? Half turning his barrel chest in the boy's direction, B-9 reports, Computers require readjustment to alien tongue, but tone of voice indicates a warning of some kind. Then readjust, quickly! kind of clever how they infer that the robot can translate this language if given more time and that'll become more relevant later on in the story but he can't do it just yet not yet gotta wait somehow that makes it a little more believable that they do that you know i agree yeah it does 
And I just love the body language that B9 is doing. You got to really watch his ears because they're almost like puppy ears. Like every time Smith bellows, his little ears turn back in the other direction. And you know, when you think of those little sensors as ears, it's really kind of creepy because one's pointing up and the other one's pointing sideways. You know, (laughs) what other animal has that? I know. Non-matching ears. And they're different colors too when they add the color. Yeah. I think one's red and one's yellow. Yeah. The yellow one's on the left, if I remember correctly. Ah, we're paying attention. There's a t- there'll be a quiz at the end of this episode, folks. Well, the robot turns his torso back squarely towards the pod, but before he can compute a translation, a powerful energy bolt fired from the cone at the top of the space pod scores a direct hit on our computerized companion. Rendering him completely kaput. Dr. Smith, they fired some sort of ray at him. I knew we shouldn't let him get too close. The unexpected attack causes Smith to backpedal with a terrified gasp. Ho, ho! As he instinctively clutches his trusty human shield for protection. Will impulsively attempts to break free and help his paralyzed pal, but he can't escape Dr. Smith's death grip. Now, my dear boy, I wouldn't say anything about this to anyone. We could put him back together in the morning. Now, Will, I really don't think we should stay here any longer. Something is very wrong. I don't like it. Over his angry objections, Will is pulled kicking and screaming out of the frame by the faint-hearted physician, leaving poor old B-9 all alone as clouds of smoke pour out of his lifeless frame. And by the way, just like in the challenge, Paul Monroe's Lost in Space Handbook notes that smoke was once more produced by Bob May himself, blowing cigar smoke out of the collar section of the robot suit. It was simple, but effective. But I wonder if Irwin sprang for those cigars, or did that come out of Bob's salary? Uh, Well, I think Bob had to pay for those, because I just can't imagine Irwin, under any circumstances, paying someone extra to have what was in effect a cigarette break. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Time is money. (laughs) He should be paying me! Well, later that night, we're back in the Jupiter 2. Will opens the airlock hatch and walks out into the darkness, carrying a small tool bag. This time, at least, he remembered to close the hatch behind him, though. A few moments later, he's back at the alien site and confronted by the sad sight of his lifeless friend, the robot. Making no sounds, lights blacked out and both accordion arms dangling uselessly, B-9 looks as dead as a coffin nail. The boy hangs the bag on the robot's shoulder hook, removes his power pack, fishes a solar wrench out of the bag, then kneels down in front to begin repairing his fearless friend. And we get a nice, rare close-up shot of the programming bay on B9's lower torso, as Will uses the wrench to make his repairs. After a few careful adjustments, the boy stands and then installs a fresh power pack. Will crosses his fingers and flips on the robot's main energizer switches. Miraculously, the robot's computer lights flash on and we hear the comforting sound of his servos clicking back to life. Relieved, Will smiles as the robot automatically retracts his claws. You're okay now. Do you know what happened to you? Inaccurate wavelength adjustment. Initiated hostile reaction. The error was mine. Due to limited extragalactic experience. Well, we'll try again tomorrow. Looking over at the alien craft, he adds, 
If it's still here, I sure hope it is. Suddenly, the space pod's exterior bubbles and cone begin to pulsate with cosmic energy. Do you know what that's all about? Good question. Last time that cone was flashing, B9 got zapped. I hope that doesn't happen again. Specifically, negative. But assumption is that extragalactic vehicle is in go condition for liftoff. Golly. The camera cuts over to the alien space TP. It also appears to be revving up for something. Any theories on what's about to happen, Kurt? Well, well, let's see. It's nighttime. Will is alone with the robot next to the same alien spacecraft that his dad said to stay away from. So I guess it's a pretty safe bet he's about to go on a joyride. (laughs) (laughs) You think? He's definitely going to go inside there. We know that. Uh, Yep. Wild horses couldn't tear him away. Uh Uh-uh. Just then, that double bubble hatch begins to slowly swing wide open again. Even though Dad had ordered everyone to stay clear of the alien ship, as you say, Will just can't resist. Without a word, the boy climbs inside the pod to make a quick inspection of the interior. Now you'd think the robot would start screaming, Danger! Danger! But no. Not a word. Once inside, that hatch slams closed behind the young castaway. The worry is short, though, because the boy touches a random glowing control bubble inside, and the hatch swings back open again. Smiling at his good luck, Will relaxes, then notices a familiar-looking device hanging next to the main viewport. It's the fear machine helmet we saw in the challenge. Guess he forgot about it, because he immediately tries it on for size, announcing, Extra galactic control, this is Will Robinson. I'm ready for liftoff. Receiving no answer, the boy grins, removes it, and says to himself, I sure wish I knew who belongs to this ship. I'd like to thank them for letting me look around. But then, the hatch closes again. But Will doesn't panic. He calmly moves back over to the control bubble. He presses it several times in different spots, but this time, the hatch stays closed. Suddenly... The calm is interrupted by the sound and force of powerful rocket engines firing. Shocked by the noise and motion, the boy is flung off his feet as the pod accelerates rapidly skyward. Driving home the point, we're shown a quick special effects shot view from the porthole. Mountain peaks and scattered clouds give way to the vapors of the upper atmosphere, then finally the starry blackness of outer space. Once again, all Will can manage is a shaky, golly, As the stars streak by outside the viewport, the camera cuts back to Will, whose face has that, how am I going to explain this one look on it? But I've got a question for you, Kurt. This isn't the first time that Will's taken an unauthorized joyride into the cosmos. But why? Why did the robot let Will climb into that ship without so much as a warning, warning? even though he knew too well that it could be dangerous. What gives, Kurt? Uh, Well, in the words of the robot from a previous episode, I am not programmed for babysitting. (laughs) (laughs) But we could be generous and say that the robot was still discombobulated from his earlier shock and his makeshift repair. 
But did you catch the eternal logic of why the ship actually took off? When Will placed the helmet on his head and gave the commands to take off, you know, doing that little pretend thing about Will to command center, it read his mind and obeyed his orders, unaware that he was only pretending. Mm. Then when he takes the helmet off, it can no longer read his mind, so it doesn't know to stop. (laughs) (laughs) I love that takeoff scene, too, out the window. I thought that was great, didn't you? Oh, I love that shot. And of course, it's so good, they're going to have to use it several more times in the show. But yes, the logic did make sense to me. I thought the same thing. You know, it's like, it's reading his mind. It's a thought control device, but he took it off. (laughs) So you're on for the ride now, boy. That was pretty cool. And I think your excuse for the robot actually makes a lot of sense to me, too, now that I think about it. He's probably still a little discombobulated from that uh, blast he got earlier. So great. It's all coming together perfectly, sir. I love it when a plan comes together. (laughs) (laughs) Indeed. Well, next, we're back outside the serene Jupiter 2 campsite, where Judy is seated at the picnic table using a briefcase-sized tape recorder to make a message for her cousin Joan, which is nice, but I couldn't help thinking, how's Joan ever going to hear that message? Well, you know, I think they were inferring that she was going to put it in the spaceship like an intergalactic message in a bottle. But you would think that they should provide some, you know, other things like space coordinates <laughs> and less of the, the campsite chit-chat. If that were the case, I mean, that's what I'd want to put in the ship. But Yeah, instead she's going on and on about how uh, Penny's not paying enough attention to her hairstyle or something like that. Yeah. It's like, <laughs> Alpha Control, we just got this tape from the Lost in Space crew. Oh, great, where are they? Well, we don't know, but Judy's hairstyle is very good. And, oh, Will's still not paying very good attention to when to come to dinner. <laughs> Oh, well, that's wonderful. Good to know they're still alive and well. (laughs) Lost in space. (laughs) Forever. (laughs) Well, the camera pulls back to reveal Penny seated at the other end of the table, getting her hair styled by Mom as they listen to Judy's dictation. And that kind of confused me. Why is Maureen doing Penny's hair the old-fashioned way? Did something happen to that electronic hairstyling machine? Hmm. Yeah, I I was wondering that, too. Maybe they robbed too many of the electronic insulators from the hairstyling helmet to pimp out for the combination fear machine helmet from the challenge and the mind-reading pilot's helmet in this episode. That's (laughs) that's the best I could come up with. (laughs) Well, the piece is interrupted by the howl of rocket engines, accompanied by a shot of a blur of light streaking through the star-filled sky. The disturbance causes John and Don to race outside. As our castaways stare skyward, Judy says, Looks like a comet. You know, it's amazing that an astronaut like Judy doesn't know the difference between a streaking meteorite and a slow-moving comet, especially considering she's seen both phenomena up close and personal in space. I mean, I know she's blonde and everything, but come on, she ain't that stupid, is she? (laughs) Sheesh. A comet? That looked like a comet? Uh. It might be that uh, extragalactic special delivery space vehicle taking off on its appointed rounds. Oh. If it is, I can't say that I'm sorry. Oh, my. Don't let Will hear you say that. By the way, why isn't he out here? Surely he must have heard it. Oh, when he's concentrating on one of his projects, he can shut out any sound that might interfere. <laughs> like a dinner call. <laughs> I think I'll go tell him what he missed. No, dear, I think that would be rather unkind. Now, you just let him continue what he's working on. <laughs> Well, as the space pod streaks through the stars, we cut back inside the alien ship, 
where Will is about to take a psychedelic trip through infinity and beyond. The worried boy stares out of the porthole as multiple layers of stars, constellations, and galaxies whiz by. Then, one of the spherical control bubbles inside the ship begins to glow brighter and brighter with hyper-energy. Well, just when things couldn't get any more frantic, the ship seems to accelerate out of this universe into parts unknown, with multiple violent flashes of cosmic energy. The velvet black of space, sprinkled with silvery stars, transforms into a negative image of the cosmos. Now the star formations are black dots, streaking past a blinding white background. Shielding his eyes from the intense glare of this weird visual experience, Will Robinson appears to be boldly going where no man has gone before. The treacherous void of the sixth dimension. Oh boy. Yeah, that's a wonderful special effects and great sound and eerie music. Much better than the space sequence scenes at the beginning of the Twilight Zone. Yeah. Mm. And I also thought it was cool that just before they cut away, there's this glowing bright light that starts to expand in the porthole at Will's left side, and it makes it look like he's about to enter some sort of sun or super bright vortex. It's very frightening and makes it very clear that everything's totally out of control, and he's definitely, you know, either entering a multi dimensional zone or just about to go, like you say, to infinity and beyond. Oh, yeah. That whole sequence was great. I loved it. I really did. That was the money shot. By the way, all this talk of bubbles has me wanting a bubble bath for some reason, but I guess I'll have to wait. Well, it makes me want to have one of those bubble drinks. You know, you're you're always flying to Asia and your piloting duties. Have you had those? Yes. My my wife calls them eyeball drinks, but they call them bubble bubble teas is what they call them. Bubble tea, yes, yes. Yeah. Well, with the act drawing to a climax, we're back down on Preplanus. Don and Judy are seated on a rock next to each other. Judy smiles and marvels at what a lovely, peaceful night it is. That's always a bad sign. Mm -hmm. With a knowing look, Don agrees, and it's sure nice to be alone for a change, adding, you'd think on a planet this size, it'd be easy to get away from it all. Uh Uh-huh. And I sure love these uniforms they give us with these convenient zippers. (laughs) (laughs) Well, that line, though, seems to jinx things for the Major, because just then, their privacy is interrupted by Penny, who scampers up saying, oh, am I interrupting anything? (laughs) (laughs) Don exhales loudly, but holds his tongue. Judy seems amused by his frustration, but covers by answering her sister coyly with a big smile. I hope that's not why you came. Oh, I am not touching that double entendre. No way, no how. (laughs) (laughs) Really, sir? (laughs) Grinning ear to ear, Penny says, of course not. She was just looking for Will. They were supposed to play a game of chess this evening. Fidgeting, Don impatiently says he hasn't seen him. But just then, another uninvited guest arrives to defend Judy's virtue as we hear the sound of Dr. Smith jogging up to a military cadence. One, two, three, four. One, two, three, four. Boiling, Don shouts, What, Smith, are you supposed to be doing? What you should all be doing, maintaining your youthful vigor with a conscientious space fitness program. Which is odd, because that's exactly what I thought Don had in mind until the betting crashers showed up. (laughs) 
Chagrined, Don shakes his head and shoots the grinning Judy a silent appeal for help. But the doctor drones on as he jogs in place. I regret to announce that this very day I found a white hair on my head, which accounts for these comprehensive calisthenics. And you expect to change its color with all this vim and vigor, huh, Smith? Spare me your caustic remarks, Major. They fall on deaf ears. Say, aren't you supposed to be replanting the hydroponic garden after last night's storm? Trapped, Smith stops jogging for a moment, then recovers. Don't prate to me about food, Major. Man does not live on bread alone. One, two, three, four. One, two, three, four. Before he can answer, another uninvited guest rolls up. The robot. Oh, no. We sure picked a nice, quiet little spot tonight, didn't we? You're supposed to be in your cubbyhole, mister. Affirmative. However, due to temporary breakdown at alien site, my schedule was interrupted. Don's ears perk up. What were you doing at the alien site? He's frothing at the tapes with his usual egomaniacal eccentricity. Negative. Reporting liftoff of extragalactic vehicle. Smiling with satisfaction, Don replies, We're way ahead of you, robot. We heard it and saw it. With amateur pilot aboard. What do you mean by amateur? I mean Will Robinson. Stuns, the couple leap to their feet as Judy asks, Will took off in the alien spaceship? Affirmative. And computations indicate an imminent return. Well, everyone is dumbfounded and unnerved by the report. But before they can process all this, the sound of the approaching rocket engines causes the group to look up as we see the alien pod streaking back down from outer space over the distant mountains. Don instructs, Penny, get your mother and father. Come on, Smith. As they race back to the alien site, Smith pauses for a moment to glare at the ten-plated tattletale, who then rolls out of frame with Dr. Smith, as usual, bringing up the rear. You know, Don and Judy's reaction to the news that Will was aboard that ship were very believable. They looked pretty terrified. No, it was great, and it was such a great reaction because the minute before, Don had that grin on his face like, ah. Yeah, we're way ahead of you, robot. Yep. Exactly. Well, this story has taken an interesting turn. Can't help but wonder how that extragalactic joyride might have affected young Will. You know, I'd be more worried about whether he's still in the craft at all rather than how he's affected. Because Will is so curious, it's hard to imagine that he would land on an alien world and not get out and explore some and get left behind by the automated return of the rocket. You know, anything is possible, and most of it is bad, in my estimation, in this particular scenario. But we'll see. Indeed. But we'll have to wait until after station identification to learn more. Space will continue after station identification. KNXT Channel 2, Los Angeles. When we return from the break to start Act 2, Henny leads Mom and Dad rushing back into the alien site where the rest of our space family is standing by. John shouts, Will! as the camera pans across to reveal that the space pod has made a safe landing, and what's more, the double bubble door is swinging open. Marine is relieved to see her son climbing out of the craft and apparently unharmed. But right off the bat, Mom senses something's different and asks, Will, what is it? Are you all right? Staring back with a quizzical expression, 
the lad maintains a golden silence, which causes Dad to prod. Will, your mother asked you a question. Crossing his arms, the boy responds. Not really, Dad. She was just expressing her momentary emotional anxiety in rhetorical terms. Certainly the state of my physical well-being should be apparent to all. Oh, and it's all dripping with conceit, I thought. You know, it brings back a lot of embarrassing memories about how conceited I acted towards my own mother when I returned from my first semester at college. We thought we were so much smarter than our parents, and they were wrong about everything, especially popular music and politics. <laughs> <laughs> we knew it all then. Yeah, you're in college. Of course you know it all. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That's funny. What did she know about college? She only graduated it when she was 17, mm. but I didn't know that at the time. Yeah. Well, he does. He has that tone of conceit in his voice right off the bat, so something has changed about them. But I did like the way they cheat with the camera move there. You're never going to see the space pod actually touching down because, of course, that would be expensive. Mm-hmm. You're always going to hear it landing with a thud. Yeah. And then the camera pans over, and there it is with the door opening. So. And then speaking of sound effects, I also like the way that when he's talking, in the background you hear this eerie music. Mm-hmm. So it's like, oh, what's something's off here. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, and it, for a moment there, you have no idea that he's going to be super smart. You're actually wondering, is this the same Will Robinson? And then when he starts to speak, you recognize his voice. Right. But the way he's talking is pretty weird. It is. It is. Although it's worth mentioning, he's now smarter, but how does that work? I mean, let's say that his mind jumped forward a million years and he's now super Einstein. You'd still have the same vocabulary that you had when you left. I mean, he doesn't have any books or anything to learn while he's there. So just being smarter might make him capable of thinking smarter thoughts but it wouldn't improve his vocabulary like that. No. Well, there's going to be some force field factor <laughs> stuff coming down the line with the, the, the way these trips affect different people. So we'll save that for, for later. Oh, okay. Well, with raised eyebrows, John glances at Maureen, who wordlessly looks back in jaw-dropping astonishment. The rest of the family is just as unsettled by Will's strange change of personality as the parents. Maureen doesn't understand why Will's speaking that way. It isn't like him to answer her question with an analysis of her feelings. Maintaining a calm HAL 9000 computer tone, the boy responds, I'm sorry if the operation of my mind doesn't please you, but that's just the way I am. The boy is showing a remarkable independent spirit, rather like mine. John tells Smith to button it and then turns back to Will, who offers, Incidentally, you've been conditioned to accept the velocity of light as a limiting factor in space travel. Well, my flight disproves that theory. The parents exchange more wordless glances. Then John says, Yes, I can see that. I'd like to talk to you about it and your experience. Yeah, I wonder how he could see that. Could he see the speed of light <laughs> being ex- going past the speed of light? That's some pretty fast eyesight, I suppose. Yeah, he's, he's making a few assumptions there, I guess. Will says, certainly, Father, but it may be a little hard for you to understand, so I'll try to simplify it. Dad replies with remarkably mild sarcasm, well, thank you. <laughs> Ignoring that, Will steps towards the others followed by Mom, who appears ready to jerk a knot in her son's tail, but John restrains her, silently nodding, let him go. (laughs) 
Yeah, I love that nonverbal communication he gives. It's very convincing. But here's some smarty pants continuity alerts here. Because uh, I'm loving this sci-fi mumbo-jumbo BS about how you've been conditioned to accept the velocity of light as the limiting factor in space travel. You know, in the very first episode, that theory was disproven. You know, John forgets he was inside the Jupiter 2 when it went into hyperdrive. And they all, and I quote, left the limits of our galaxy mm. in just a matter of minutes. Now, how could you do that without passing the speed of light? Well, you could argue that hyperspace isn't hyperspeed. It's more like folding space or wormholes, allowing you to jump great distances instantaneously by taking interdimensional shortcuts. Now, that redefines how we measure speed, though, since it's basically redefining how we measure both distance and time. But either way, it negates Einstein's claim that the speed of light is the fastest anything can go. Because no matter how you spin it, we've traveled millions of light years in minutes. Now, the professor should know that. Will should know that. And more importantly, the writers should know that. But apparently they don't think we should know that. <laughs> so we should just act like Judy did earlier and play it stupid because, you know, science is hard, I guess. <laughs> yeah, I guess it is hard. And, you know, this is the problem with the reset theory of television production back in those days, mm -hmm. you know, where continuity was like the last thing on their list, mm -hmm. especially after they got out of those first five episodes. But, oh, well, just go with the flow, Kurt. <laughs> Well, without asking permission, Will plucks the blaster out of Don's holster, declaring, I'll have to see what I can do on improving this weapon. It's very antiquated. What? Obsolete. That goes for us, too, I suppose, says Don. Everyone's disturbed and at a loss for words by all this. Everyone but Dr. Smith. I believe this boy has unlocked the secrets of the universe. We may have a latter-day Einstein in our midst. I don't like obvious flattery, Dr. Smith. Next time, try to be a little more subtle. I beg your pardon. I meant no offense. You and I must have a nice long chat very soon, my boy. Not until his mother and I have had a much longer one with him, Dr. Smith. By the way, weren't you supposed to be working in the hydroponic garden? Donning that, who me, I'm innocent expression. Smith answers, The hydroponic garden. Oh yes, it completely slipped my mind. But I shall attend to it immediately after dinner. No, you won't. There won't be any dinner until you get that job done. Indeed. I shall very likely starve. Right on cue, Don chimes in. Man does not live by bread alone, remember, Smith? Ah, Major. Mom tells Will to come along, and the rest of the family follows, all except Dr. Smith, who lingers behind to sneak a quick look inside the space pod. But no sooner does he start to peer in than the double-bubble door swings shut. leaving the frowning doctor shut out and the rest of us giggling at his frustration. Hmm. Go ahead and giggle, but remember, he who laughs last, laughs best. Aha. <laughs> Sometime later, we're in the upper deck of the Jupiter 2. Little Einstein Robinson, pointer in hand, is standing in front of a grease board filled with complex differential equations. John and the Major are seated and paying close attention as Will begins his lecture. To understand me, the first thing you'll have to do is discard everything you know about energy conversion factors. Well, it's impossible, son. I was afraid you'd say that. How can I teach you anything if you won't accept what I say? We don't want you to teach us anything, Will. 
We just want you to tell us what happened to you out there. I wasn't aware that anything had happened to me. And if you insist on asking these primitive and emotional questions, I won't be able to tell you anything. You know, if he's really such a genius, Will might want to start out by redesigning that clear glass blackboard. You know, what good are those things? By using a transparent marker board, it's harder to see whatever you write because everything behind it is interfering and distracts from it. And if you flip it over, you don't even get to use the other surface because you can see all the previous surfaces you know, backwards. So that, that board is a clear example of being different just for the sake of being different. Yeah. But it is fun and it, it's a reminder of the times because that's exactly what the hippie generation was doing back in the 1960s. Everybody was being different and being a rebel just to be different. And it didn't even make any sense, you know? <laughs> yeah, I thought the same thing. It's, it's not very practical, is it? <laughs> no. Well, John's had enough with Will's attitude and takes over the lecture. Come here, son. Now, before you took that flight, you and I had a natural, easygoing relationship. The kind of thing that's normal between a father and his son. You're saying I'm abnormal now. But I'm not, Dad. I know what I was like. And I haven't really changed. Maybe you have. Then he drops the pointer and storms out of the room. Flummoxed, Dad's at a loss, but Don fills in. No, he hasn't really changed. He's just become a fire super genius is all. Well, what happened in here? Will was almost in tears. Well, at least he experienced that primitive emotion. He's still a boy. Has he given you reason to doubt it? Well, not to doubt it, Maureen, but to recognize that he's undergone a tremendous acceleration in intellectual maturity since he took that flight. In many ways, he's way ahead of us. Yeah, I might have to bone up on multi-dimensional flight phenomena before he'll talk to me again. Well, it can't harm him, can it? No. Only in his relationship to us. Yeah, that would hurt that relationship pretty much, because if there's one thing John doesn't appreciate, it's someone being smarter than he is. (laughs) (laughs) Well, next, out in the hydroponic garden... Looking very bored, Will's perched up on a rock, staring at the sky, while Judy tends to the plants. She asks if he'd like to help her transplant some of the vegetables. Jumping down from the rock, he asks if it's really necessary. Well, they do have to eat, she says. Ignoring that, the boy turns his attention to the high-tech trays filled with greenery and judges that their methods are very elementary. Oh, do you know any better ones, she says? Yes, but it would be useless explaining them to you. Judy's starting to lose her patience. She understands he's a brain now, but he doesn't have to put everyone else down. Your hypersensitivity is showing, Judy. Now, if we keep this up, you'll probably storm out of here in a huff. Somehow, Judy refrains from giving little brother a good pop on the jaws and instead does exactly what Will predicted, storms off in a huff. Watching her leave, the boy shakes his head. Poor kid, no intellectual discipline. Yeah, well, Judy may be blonde, but she just outsmarted Will and got in the last word. Oh, yes. Yes, she did. You know, the last word is is what really matters in these arguments. It doesn't even matter if it's any good. It's just sometimes my mom would do that. We'd just be arguing, and I'd make some really good point, and she'd just say, last word, and she'd leave. (laughs) (laughs) That seems to be a common refrain with uh, a lot of females (laughs) that I know. (laughs) But to actually say just last word, it's like, how do you respond to that? Because if you respond, you're like falling into the trap. They know that you're just trying to get in the last word. Exactly. (laughs) Just then, Penny walks into the garden offering Will a chance for revenge since she beat him at chess last time. 
the boy scoffs at the impossible idea that she beat him? With a little more goading, he reluctantly agrees to a rematch. It's useless, and she doesn't stand a chance, but she might as well learn for herself. Disturbed by Will's response, Penny asks what's the matter. Will doesn't know, and changes the subject saying, come on, let's play. Luckily, a few steps away, there's a nice table for two, already prepped with the chessboard set and ready to go. The siblings take their seats and the game begins. I'll let you make the first move, Penny. Not that it'll help. Gee, thanks. There. After three moves, Will sighs and says, I'm sorry, Penny. Sorry? About what? This game's getting kind of boring. What do you mean? Now try not to get all sensitive like Judy, but you might as well know it. you're already lit. I am not. It's inevitable, Penny. Now, when you attack with your bishops, I'll take them. And then you'll get all busy with your knights, but by that time I'll have your king. You know so much, don't you? I'm sorry, Penny, but that's just the way it is. Well, why don't we just play the game and see? There's no fun when you know what's going to happen ahead of time. There's no challenge. The glum mood is interrupted by the arrival of a smiling Dr. Smith. Well, well, well. Playing the game of great minds, I see. May I kibitz a bit? There's nothing to kibitz. I've had it. Penny pushes back from the table. Following in Judy's footsteps, she storms out of the frame. You, you know, I found that word choice to be very interesting. Kibitz is Yiddish, and it wasn't very mainstream at all in the 1960s. So was Parker trying to infer that Dr. Smith is Jewish? And if so, that would certainly be an interesting autobiographical detail to know. Smith isn't a common Jewish name, although I did have a Jewish girlfriend with that last name. However, we should keep in mind this story supposedly takes place in 1997, not in 1966. So maybe Pactor was again predicting something that would come to pass, that we would be a much more multi-ethnic society in the future with a lot more diverse language and... That certainly has come to pass, you know. Mm. And now, Penny also uses the term, although it's not clear that she really knows what the meaning of it is. But either way, that was a very peculiar term back then, and it's worthy of note. It was an interesting word choice. I had to wonder about it myself. Now, I don't think I've ever heard anything about Dr. Smith supposedly being Jewish, So, but it could be something that Packer added in there. Or it might have been a word that he was more familiar with using. I'm not sure. I don't think Packer was Jewish either, but uh, I kind of like the sound of the word. <laughs> yeah, it's, yeah. It's, I, I'm going to probably use it a little bit more often. <laughs> and you know what? I, I kind of have, just personally, I kind of find those Yiddish terms to be kind of associated with sort of like the New York cosmopolitan lifestyle, which is definitely in Smith's character. Well, it is in his biography that he was born in New York, although that's all made-up stuff from behind the scenes. Yeah, but the real Jonathan Harris was also born in New York, wasn't he? Right, and he was oh, Jewish, Brooklyn. so, I mean, he would, yeah. have, he would have definitely been familiar with that well, term. Well, this may have been one of the lines that he added to it. Oh, that's a good point. He very well may have. And At this point in the show, nobody's going to say no. Here's another theory. You know, he was always adding unusual words that, uh, you know, like prate, that we haven't <laughs> commonly mm -hmm. used and everything. 
And I think he got a kick out of people having to look up what the words mean. So maybe he threw that one in there. Like you say, he added it in there and say, well, people are going to learn a little Yiddish on the side here. Yep. And he said in his little uh, interview that we had a couple weeks ago that he took pride in the fact that they would send the kids to the dictionary to look it up. So maybe that he had already heard about those letters and was uh, integrating that into his his script modifications now. Mm, I like it. Well, after Penny's gone, Smith takes her place and absentmindedly resets the chess pieces. Now then. Don't trouble yourself, Dr. Smith. We're not evenly matched. Perhaps not. But we could have a little chat. About what? Oh, ships and shoes and sealing wax. In other words, multidimensional excursion vehicles. Looking up from the board with raised brows, Smith says... How did you know? You're very transparent to me, Dr. Smith. Smith beams back with a Cheshire grin. Really? How delightful. Then we understand each other, Will. No, I understand you. Now, what's on your mind? Not that my answer will do you any good. Don't underestimate the intellectual resources of Zachary Smith, my boy. Now tell me, if I were to undertake a flight in that vehicle, would it do for me what it has done for you? I loved Will's subtle put-down, by the way, about, no, I understand you, but you don't understand me, you idiot. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, and Bill Mooney's doing an outstanding job playing the know-it-all here. He's really really doing a good job. It's so different from Will as he normally is, you know? Yes, Uh, because normally you kind of want to just hug the kid, but here you just definitely want to slap him. (laughs) Exactly, exactly. With a disapproving look, Will answers... Even if it did, I'm not sure you could handle it. Let me worry about that. How would you like to give me a few pointers on the technique involved in piloting that vehicle? For what ulterior motives, Dr. Smith? Incensed, Smith stiffens in his seat. Ulterior motives? I? (laughs) The camera cuts back and forth between close-ups of the stern-faced Will and all-ears Smith listening to the young, far-out super-genius count off. All right, then I'll explain them to you. One, you can hardly wait to leave here. Two, you're hoping that if you can learn to fly that vehicle, it'll make you some sort of lord of the galaxies. Three, if you can ever guide it back to Earth, you'll become president of the United States at the very least. Ah, okay, now, we try to stay apolitical on this show because we get way too much of the political bias of the news and Facebook and in the movies, and it's one of the refreshing things about Lost in Space. It's so nonpartisan, but without taking sides on either party, it is fun to consider what Will just said and ask yourself, if Dr. Smith came back to Earth as a space hero and ran for president, which party would he exploit best to achieve his goals? Now, I could think of a lot of ammunition to argue either party, but even though the thought of President Zachary Smith is mildly terrifying, I have to admit, I would just love to see that guy in debate, especially if Don West were to run against him, which he probably would do, knowing Don. (laughs) Wouldn't that be a riot? Uh, It'd be the debate of the century. (laughs) That would be great. Oh, yeah. Well, that last item has Smith very interested indeed. Really? I hadn't thought of that, but it does sound intriguing. Go on. I'm sorry, Dr. Smith, but you and I don't communicate on the same level of maturity. Now it's Will's turn to storm off in a huff. As he does, the camera closes in on the scheming Dr. Smith. He picks up the king from the chessboard, 
glances at it, then cuts his eyes back in the direction of the departing boy. Very well. William Robinson Socrates Einstein. I'm not done with you yet. That was great, Al. He picked up the king <laughs> of all pieces, right? Well, he almost went for the queen, but this is network television. <laughs> oh, I fell right into that one, didn't I? <laughs> Later that night, we're back inside the upper deck of the Jupiter 2. Will's pacing back and forth in front of the robot, who's apparently in sleep mode. Looking around the ship, he says to himself, If Dad would give me permission, I could pack all of this into one-tenth the space. No, he's not ready for it yet. Switching on B9's energizer switches, our boy genius comments, You're oversized too, as well as obsolete. The robot comes to life and responds, a product of contemporary technology is incapable of obsolescence. Boy, have you got a lot to learn. Just then, a concerned Mrs. Robinson walks into the room and switches off the robot. Mom says he should be asleep already, but Will claims he doesn't need as much sleep as he used to. Well, he may not think he does with so much going on in that wonderful mind of his, but he still needs his rest. No one else thinks my mind is wonderful. They think I'm some sort of freak highbrow. Oh, nonsense. Of course they don't, says Mom. Underneath, you're still the same boy you always were. Looking unconvinced, Will replies, I don't feel that way. Oh. Face full of motherly compassion, Mom says, I tell you what, tomorrow, let's all go on a picnic. And if you enjoy it as much as you always did, then you'll know you haven't changed. Will doesn't think it'll help, but he'll go. Chuckling, Mom says, All right, let's go to bed. And they both head down the electronic elevator for a little rest. Good old Mom. Mm -hmm. She always knows how to make Will feel better. Now, did you notice that when she turned Will around to go to bed, she didn't turn him towards herself as she walked past him, which is the natural thing you would do, you know, if you're talking to somebody to maintain eye contact. But instead, she turned him away from herself so that he would instead continue to face the camera while exiting. No. I, <laughs> is, that, is that infamous stage turn we've joked about before? Yeah, that was clever. And I didn't even catch it this time. But uh, smooth move, Maureen. Like it. Yeah. Always the consummate professional. Yes. Will really must not need much sleep because a short time later, we see him outside in the midnight air, seated on a rock working on a ream of technical blueprints by the light of a space-age Coleman lantern. Dr. Smith comes traipsing up from behind. Will, my dear boy, what are you doing out here? I couldn't sleep. Peering over the boy's shoulder at the specs, Smith comments knowingly, Ah, oh, what a brilliant design, what a magnificent concept. What is it? <laughs> a reconstruction of the Jupiter II, not that you'd understand it or anyone else. Donning a solemn expression, Smith replies, I realize that. That's why I'm here. I've made a very important decision, Will. Oh, who do you plan to get in trouble this time? Oh, ye of little faith. The fact is, my boy, that at the gravest risk to myself and for purely altruistic reasons only, I am willing to undertake a flight in that vehicle. 
Turning at last to face the deceptive doctor, Will asked to hear those altruistic reasons. There is only one reason, my boy. You. Shaking his head in distaste, Will returns to his blueprints. But the sales pitch has just begun. Circling to the boy's other side, Smith proclaims, Oh, it hurts me deeply to see you suffer the pangs of intellectual isolation. You need someone to soar with you above the common herd, to be an intellectual giant like yourself. I volunteer for that perilous assignment. (laughs) Unmoved by Smith's sacrificial offer, Will says, I got back okay, so it's not so perilous. Now let's skip the big talk, huh? You are not very kind, are you? In yet another example of that clever theatrical staging you were talking about, with the boy in the background, the doctor steps closer to the camera, prayerfully folding his hands together, and in a pious tone pledges, All I want is to see you happy. Cutting his eyes over his shoulder in the boy's direction, he adds, To give you the companionship and the understanding that you deserve? Isn't that what you need? It might be nice to have someone I wouldn't have to talk down to. But there's just one problem. Sensing an opening, Smith rushes back to the boy's side, asking, What problem? You're not doing this for me. Oh, my dear misguided boy. We might get on a whole lot better if you'd admit that you were doing this for yourself, Dr. Smith. You have cut me to the quick. What can I say? It doesn't matter, because I'd see through it no matter what you said. But I guess it's wrong to hold back scientific knowledge from someone who really wants to know. Oh, I do. I do. And we might get on a little bit better once you'd been out there. We'll be bosom buddies. You sound phony when you say that, Dr. Smith. Here. Here's a layout of the guidance system. Yes. Hatch control here. And Smith eagerly soaks up the information that he hopes will transform him into the Lord of the Galaxy. As the act nears a climax, it's next morning. Jolly old Dr. Smith, satchel slung over his shoulder, is singing as he marches at a quick pace along the sandy path back to the alien site. As he enters the clearing, we get a nice master shot of the space pod and the space teepee sitting side by side as usual. Unlike last time, though, as Smith approaches the pod's double bubble door, welcomes him by automatically opening. Smith seems to take this in stride and pauses for a moment only to make sure the coast is clear. Then, without any sign of fear, climbs up and into the craft. Once he's safely inside, the hatch automatically glides shut behind him. Switching inside the pod's tight quarters, Smith pulls out Will's tech specs and begins going through his pre-launch checklist. Now let's see... Scanning the cabin for the correct bubble to activate, he lists them off as he touches them in sequence. Uh, yes. Power on. Touching that bubble causes the pod to come to life. Now, main thrusters. Pressing that bubble causes the rockets to fire. And just like that, we're shown another shot of the pod streaking up through the stratosphere, heading for multi-dimensional space. It looks like Smith is experiencing a little smoother liftoff than Will did because Smith doesn't appear bothered by the pod's motion or g-forces. Instead, Dr. Smith wears a wide-eyed expectant grin on his face as he casually takes a seat, dons the silver control helmet, 
and watches through the viewport as the planet's limb gives way to the blackness of space. Taking it in, he repeats to himself, Lord of the galaxy, Lord Zachary Smith, whom I Notice that he put the helmet on after liftoff, whereas Will put it on before liftoff and took it off before the flight. So this might account for those different reactions they get. Mm, good point. Good point. They might go to a different dimension in multidimensional space. Yeah. He looks hilarious with that helmet on, I have to say. <laughs> yes. That expression of excitement. Uh, it does really remind me a lot of Sheldon on Big Bang Theory at that point. Yep. He's, he's like a kid in a candy store. He just can't wait. We dissolve back down to the surface of Preplanus. Will's back on the plateau, standing on that same rock he used at the beginning of the story for a better view. But this time, instead of looking for a mother load, his electro-binoculars are trained skyward, searching for Daddy Zack. Just then, Dad and Don walk up. Major West asks Will if he'd like to tag along with them to the drill site. Not now. Right now he's waiting for Dr. Smith to get back. Curious, John asks, where is he? Will estimates that right now he's on the return leg of the flight. Dad clarifies, you mean that liftoff we heard earlier was... Was Dr. Smith. He was very insistent, and I thought the experience might do him some good. Both adults wear troubled expressions, but before they can learn more, the calm is interrupted by the high-pitched sound of the space pod making its re-entry. All three castaways turn in the direction of the sound to see a blur of white light streaking back down through the clouds. Will announces matter-of-factly, Well, he's back. Should we go welcome him? Not waiting for an answer, the boy hops down from the rock and walks out of frame, leaving John and Don exchanging uneasy looks before they follow after him. You know, I I like that shrug of exasperation that John shot Don before leaving the scene. You really get the feeling that Smith has tried John's patience far more than all three of his biological children combined. I know. And that's another thing is, you know, making Smith get super smart would be a troubling uh, problem because, I mean, the guy's dangerous enough being as smart as he is. And we know that his maturity didn't improve at all with Will becoming smarter. He was still the same immature Will. So you're still going to get the diabolical Dr. Smith, selfish Dr. Smith, even as Einstein. Mm -hmm. That's a good point. But, you know, I was kind of thinking, why did he bother coming back? If he had figured out how to navigate the thing, why didn't he just head directly for Earth? But... Oh, well. (laughs) Ah, you're applying logic. No, that's your first mistake. (laughs) Uh. Well, after another dissolve, our three castaways approach the alien site. The major's grousing about having to give Smith a welcome. But as they round a boulder and enter the clearing, Don suddenly goes quiet, and the welcome committee is halted dead in their tracks by a truly astonishing sight. Sitting on a rock, next to the returned space pod, is a hunched-over stranger with long white hair and beard who looks the spitting image of Rip Van Winkle. But after just a second, we recognize that it isn't a stranger. It is, in fact, as Will blurts out in disbelief, Dr. Smith! 
Ah, well, there's your answer. That's why he came back, because it didn't make him smarter. It made him old. (laughs) (laughs) The camera gives us a nice close-up of the old man's face. And even though it's now careworn and wrinkled, there's no doubt about it. It's Zachary Smith, all right. His extragalactic flight has apparently matured him much differently than it did for Will. In the course of his short time off Preplanus, Dr. Smith appears to have aged at least 40 years. He's no longer Daddy Zack, he's Granddaddy Zack. Or maybe even Great Granddaddy Zack. Upset, Will rushes over and kneels down to the doctor, who pitifully moans. Oh dear, see what has happened to me. Look at my face and weep. Wagging his finger at the tongue-tied boy, he adds, No, because I listened to you, you young upstart. The professor and Major trade more worried glances, but just like Will, they're also at a loss for words. It's a shocking turn of events, Kurt, but I couldn't help thinking of that mind-blowing scene at the end of 2001 when astronaut Dave Bowman took his psychedelic space pod journey through multidimensional space, he also experienced rapid aging, but at least he ultimately evolved into a galactic star child. What's next for Dr. Smith? Wow, that's a pretty interesting concept, but not surprisingly, I don't know the answer. But hearing you pose that question makes me wonder, how can a body age 40 years without starving to death after just aging two or three weeks. I mean, there was no food on board Dave or Zachary Smith's space pod. Mm. And where do they go to potty all that relative time? I mean, my spacesuit would be overflowing at that point. Yeah, I don't know if they had Depends in, <laughs> in 1997, but they... <laughs> that does depend. Yeah. <laughs> That's funny. Well, in any event, we'll have to wait until after this commercial break to find out what's next for poor old Dr. Smith. Oh, the pain. The pain. Oh, dear. Lost in Space, brought to you by... Mr. Bubble. Take a bath with Mr. Bubble. He'll get you so clean your mother won't know you. And Mr. Bubble leaves no bathtub ring. Hey kids, heard about the new bubbly way to take a bath with Mr. Bubble. He's got a bubbly face and a bubbly nose. Mr. Bubble. He'll bubble you clean and soften your skin. Mr. Bubble. He'll bubble your nose and bubble your chin. It's so much fun when you hop in with Mr. Bubble. Take a bath with Mr. Bubble, the new fun way to get clean. Just pour Mr. Bubble in, splash on the water, and you never saw so many big, long-lasting bubbles. You don't have to rub or scrub. Mr. Bubble bubbles you clean and softens your skin with lanolin, but never leaves a bathtub ring. Take a bubbly bath in a bubbly tub. You'll never want to stop. My name is Mr. Bubble, and you can watch me pop. When we return from the break to start Act 3, we're back outside the Jupiter campsite. Our space family is seated around the dinner table, and everyone seems to be wearing somber faces. Will gets up from his seat, and the camera pans right, following him as he steps a few feet away to join Granddaddy Zack. Wearing a gray flannel housecoat and a houndstooth shawl to keep warm, he sits in his old-fashioned 
FDR-style wheelchair slurping from a bowl of broth on the chair's rest-home-style food tray. It's no wonder there's a Last Supper pall hanging over our castaways, because even though it's meant to be a little humorous, there's also something truly pitiful about the sight of Dr. Smith in his current condition. At least I thought so. Yeah, although it's a good thing they thought ahead enough to bring that old-fashioned wheelchair along with them into space. <laughs> I, w- I would have forgotten that along with the kidney dialysis machine and the iron lung, but that's just me. Exactly. Watching intently in silence as Granddaddy Zack struggles to finish the last few slurps of his warm broth, then mournfully drops his spoon on the tray. Will's face is full of pathos for the doleful doctor. Sighing with heartache, Smith grumbles, Betrayed. What a calamity. What a tragic end. Laid low in the prime of my life. Weak and afflicted with the infirmities of age. Shivering, the grimacing greybeard whimpers, Eh, eh, I feel cold. I think I'd like a little more broth, please. Uh, Put some nice soft bread in it. (laughs) My teeth are not what they used to be. Hurry. Will picks up the bowl and moves back to the table to fetch the broth. As Mrs. Robinson ladles up the soup, Judy says, Poor Dr. Smith. Maureen asks John, Isn't there something we can do to help him? There must be, says Judy. John exhales solemnly. They'll make all the tests they can, but he doesn't think it'll do any good. Hearing that, Smith silently shakes his head in despair. (laughs) Handing the bowl to Major West... Maureen suggests with a grin that he take the broth to Smith. Shocked, Don answers, me? (laughs) Now everyone's biting back giggles, but Mom says with a bigger smile, yes, go on. It might make him feel... (laughs) It might make him feel better. (laughs) I mean... (laughs) It'll make him suspicious as poison it is what it'll do. (laughs) Piling on, John says, go on. Giving in, Don takes the bowl and with an okay, makes his way over to poor old Dr. Smith, as the rest of the family observes with great interest. Gingerly placing the bowl on Smith's tray, he comforts, Here you go now, Dr. Smith, some nice warm soup for you. How about that, huh? Thank you, Major. Very kind of you. And high time, too. The camera tracks in on the pair as Don kneels down, coming eye to eye with poor old Dr. Smith, and sincerely soothes, Oh, now, Doctor, listen. Doctor, John and I are going to do everything we can to try to find out what happened to you out there. It's quite unnecessary, Major. You will soon be performing an autopsy on my mortal remains. Oh, oh, oh. Switching between close-ups of Don and Smith, the Major assures with a friendly smile, No, you see, listen, if we can simulate the conditions of your flight in a test chamber, we might get a lead on how to counteract the effect, you see? Looking guardedly hopeful, Smith asks, You really think so? Well, we're going to do everything we can. Now, can you tell us what your velocity was when the change occurred? I can't remember. I can only remember things of long ago. When I was young and handsome, (laughs) and life was full of promise... Returning to the present, the doctor changes the subject. I think I might be able to manage a little dessert, please. Something nice and sweet, if you'd be so kind. (laughs) 
giggling along, the Major gently pats Granddaddy Zack's shoulder. Well, I'm glad to see your appetite's okay. But the words are little comfort to Smith. He wants his sweets. <laughs> Will you begrudge me my last remaining pleasure? I want something nice and sweet! Biting his lip to keep from laughing, Don springs up like a scalded dog while old man Smith suspiciously watches him run out of frame to fetch something sweet. <laughs> uh, I know you could see Mark Goddard was... He was just about to lose it when Harris barked at him. <laughs> that was so funny. <laughs> oh, I nearly busted a gut at saying too. At first, it makes you feel sad because you feel sorry for Smith, seeing how pathetic he is. But then you see Don acting so magnanimous uh, by burying the hatchet and wanting to help Smith. But then Smith plays the <laughs> "Give me what I want because I might die waiting," you know, <laughs> card. And Don goes scurrying off to comply. And we see Smith glaring at him yeah. at the end, obviously enjoying the fact that despite the infirmities of old age, he likes the leverage that this sad situation gives him over Don. So he, even the shadow of death has its silver lining for Smith. Oh, does he ever, man. Is, he wants to milk this for all it's worth. Classic. But, you know, you have to think, they must have known they were setting up potential explosive situation. <laughs> Sending Don yeah, he, You the... go over there. You give it to him. Me? It might make him feel better. <laughs> go ahead, Don. <laughs> of course, once John tells him to do it, he's got to do it. Absolutely. You're the boss, John. <laughs> Later that night, outside the ship... Professor Robinson and Major West are experimenting with a bench-top test chamber to recreate the conditions experienced during Smith's extragalactic flight. The device looks like a cross between an old microwave oven and a space heater, complete with Bunsen burner flames popping off behind the glass. In addition, the chamber is connected to the large cosmic radiation gauge, which coincidentally is a recycled prop like the diving bell which we last saw also in the raft. Seeing that prop again gave me a bad feeling, Chewy, because last time we saw it, they almost blew up the Jupiter-2 with Will's rocket fuel, remember? Oh, yeah. John asked the Major for a reading on the gauge, and so far, so good. So the professor decides to give it a little more acceleration. Observing the test, Will's not so sure it's a good idea, but Dad shushes the young upstart before he can finish. I guess he should have listened, though, because the next second... Don shouts, It's going into the red zone! John shouts, We'll cut the power! But it's too late. The test chamber explodes violently. Complete with shattered glass and clouds of white smoke. That was a nice onstage effect, but to me it looked a little too close for comfort for Guy Williams because he was standing right next to that microwave when it blew. I mean, that was close. Yeah. And I do know from reading Cushman's book, the uh, pyrotechnic guy, his name is Stu Moody. He certainly earns his keep on Lost in Space. But in the book, he tells a story about how Moody lost a couple of fingers during a shooting of one episode in season two. But we'll save that story for when we get to that episode. But the fact is, you know, we joke about flash powder on Lost in Space, but that stuff is not without its hazards. Oh, wow. Well, you know, it does sound pretty painful. I, I just hope Irwin let him take a little time off so he could run and put a Band-Aid on it. <laughs> you know, so he wouldn't get replaced when he came back. <laughs> 
After the danger passes, Will gets his I told you so moment, and there's not much Dad can say on a family show, so he bites his tongue. With the smoke still billowing out of the destroyed device, the ladies come piling out of the Jupiter 2 to see what the brouhaha is all about. Marine wisely limits her comments to a relieved, Oh, John. <laughs> the professor is more philosophical. Well, it looks as though whatever Smith went through will never simulate it here. Will says he might be able to get some answers with a four-year analysis, or better yet, he might take another test flight. Oh no, says Mom firmly. She doesn't want to hear any more talk about a test flight. Just then, from off screen, (laughs) we hear the painful wails of Granddaddy Zack approaching. Shuffling into the frame, using a cane for support, The slumped-over old-timer hobbles to a stop in front of the group, complaining, Must you disturb an old man's rest with your horseplay? I should never have allowed you to raise my hopes. I'm doomed. John assures Dr. Smith they haven't given up. Closing in on the elderly Smith's face, he pleads, Oh, please, don't raise my hopes again. My nerves can't take it. I can see I must prepare for the end. But please, Professor, keep trying and don't lose any time. Your results may be useful to others, even though I will not be here to benefit from them. (laughs) Turning back towards the ship, Old Man Smith barks at Judy. Help an old man up the ramp, Gailey. As she escorts him out of the frame, Maureen follows after to lend assistance, and the rest of the family watches in sympathy. I couldn't help notice that Jonathan Harris was clearly enjoying this opportunity to ham it up in these scenes, and the rest of the cast are really working hard to fight back laughs from his <laughs> over-the-top performance. I, I just wish we knew where those blooper reels were from this, because I'm sure they had to make, <laughs> make some mistakes. Yeah, you know, it's kind of weird, though, seeing such a pathetic figure shuffling along and seeing family members act like they are acting they're feeling sorry for them while detecting just a hint of humor in their expressions, you know? (laughs) My kids get that same look whenever the other kids are getting a spanking, you know? (laughs) They seem dutifully sympathetic, and yet you detect just a hint of inner joy. (laughs) Yes, schadenfreude. (laughs) You take joy in others' pain, I guess. Uh, Mm -hmm. And, you know, John seems all too willing to give up. I think John's even more willing to give up this effort to bring Smith back than Don is, which is odd. (laughs) Well, before the scene ends, Will interjects hopefully, Dad, I don't think his molecular change is irreversible. Penny asks what that's supposed to mean. Dad's not sure he agrees with Will, but he thinks it means there's hope for Dr. Smith. The girl quips, what they need is a fountain of youth, or it's deep space equivalent. The Major says they'll get working on their version of the Fountain of Youth in the morning, while Will works on his. With that, they all head back into the ship for the night. Later, as the act nears a close, we're down in the ship's lower deck laboratory. Will's peering into a microscope, when abruptly... The doddering old doctor comes shuffling out of his cabin, clutching a cane in one hand and his shawl in the other. Smith struggles to make his way over to join the junior genius, asking in between little yelps of pain, Uh, uh, Well, Willie, have you discovered anything? (laughs) Finally reaching his waiting wheelchair with great effort, he bends down as far as his crooked back will allow, then plops. (laughs) 
butt first into his seat with a comedic thud. Will finishes adjusting some test gear, then joins Smith's side. Not yet, Dr. Smith. It takes time. Time and tide wait for no man. I should never have listened to you. Cutting between close-ups of the two friends, Will says he could do a lot better if Smith would donate a sample of his venerable blood. But wailing, Smith objects. Oh no, no, I have barely enough to go around. It's just one drop. No, no, it could make the difference between life and death to me. Well, it's not easy trying to test the reversibility of molecular change with just one white hair. Beginning to think the only other way is a test flight. Test flight? Hmm. Suddenly, Smith stops whimpering, and his face goes from pathetic to conniving. Cutting his eyes towards the boy, he softly asks, What would you do on a test flight, Sonny? Well, first I'd try putting the guidance system in reverse. Brilliant idea. Do you think it would work? It's scientifically feasible. However, out there, there's no guarantee. No matter. I'm ready to try anything. What has an old man got to lose? Not much, I guess. Cutting his eyes back in Will's direction, Smith says softly, Then it's all settled. You'll go at once. Me? But you're the one who would have to change, Dr. Smith. Proving he's still a master of manipulation, Smith whimpers, Surely you don't expect an old party like me to risk a test flight? I might have a seizure en route, and then you'd never know what happened. Leaning closer, Smith shakily pokes a finger in Will's chest. As a dedicated scientist, it's your duty to make the flight. Well, I would if I could persuade Dad to let me go. Good heavens, an intellectual giant with your maturity having to ask permission from Daddy. He's still my father. But not your intellectual equal. He's pretty good. I'd feel a lot better if he knew more than I did. It's not much fun when you have to explain things to your own father and everyone else besides. Now, sporting a devious grin, Smith flatters. Ah, what filial devotion. Think how proud he'd be when you told him why you did it after you get back. <laughs> if the reversibility principle works, I'll be the way I was before, too. Nodding in agreement, the sly old fox smiles wider and taps Will's cheeks as he sets the hook. Uh, how happy it will make your dear mother to have her own little willy back with her again. <laughs> I think that was a great scene, but it was funny how Will seemed to have lost his super genius Smith BS detector. Maybe he's just so eager to go on another flight, he's playing along. Any thoughts? Well, I'm thinking there are some things you will never be able to outsmart Smith over, whether you're Einstein or not. And conniving a way to manipulate you, (laughs) well, that's one of them. Well, just like that, the space pod once again has been launched into extragalactic space as its silver blur courses swiftly across the star-spangled cosmic blackness. Outside the ship, 
A giggling granddaddy Zack is seated in his wheelchair, waving up to the sky, crying, Bon voyage! Bon voyage! <laughs> the camera pulls out as the rest of our castaways rush into the area from all directions. John shouts, What's happening? Ah, such courage, such devotion. You have a remarkable son, Professor. Confused and worried, the parents demand an explanation, and the ancient smith proudly spills the beans, wills reversing the irreversible. Soon, they'll both be their old former selves. John's infuriated. Why, you crazy old fool? But there's no time now for feuding. Maureen sends Judy to get Penny and sensibly tells John they have to get over there now. Dragging Smith out of his wheelchair, Don scolds, You're coming too, foxy old grandpa. Steady, Major. Steady. I still have a delicate pack, you know. Uh, uh, Steady. Next, we dissolve back to the alien site. As our castaways quickly approach, again we hear but don't see the space pod making its landing. As the group rushes around the boulders at the edge of the clearing, they spot the glowing craft back in its usual spot next to the other alien machine. Then, cautiously they pause in anticipation. It looks as normal as this bizarre scene can look to me, but Don, still supporting Grandpappy Smith, uneasily says, I'm not sure that's the same ship. What do you think, John? The professor's not sure either. It does look a little different. And I wasn't sure either, folks, because the music is telegraphing something sinister might be about to happen. Quick, Kurt, tell your kids to hide their eyes. The scary music is back. Oh, you know, it's funny you say that because my three-year-old hid behind me when she heard the music and she knew there was trouble afoot. (laughs) I know, I know, that's right, that's right, that music is the killer. Well, the tension mounts as John shouts for Will to come out of the vehicle, but he gets no answer. Just then, the double bubble door starts to slowly open. But instead of their runaway son climbing out of the ship, our space family is confronted by a hideous and unexpected sight. Emerging from the pod's interior is a grotesque-looking alien creature covered in scales, best described as half-fish, half-man. Everyone reflexively gasps in horror and takes a step back at the sight of the repulsive visitor. The fear factor intensifies when the alien leaps down from the ship's steps and onto the sand and makes a threatening move towards our terrified space family. Kurt, was Major West Hunch right? Is this a different ship? If it isn't, what's happened to the original pod? Worse yet, if it is the same ship, what's happened to Will? Well, you know, maybe the spaceship took Will all the way back to the fish world where the Piranha people ate Will in a bloodthirsty feeding frenzy, and now one of them is taking the ship back to Preplanus in hopes of finding more soft pink humans to feed his fellow fish fiends. (laughs) (laughs) So it's jackpot! Gosh. Well, with so many questions and some of the possible answers too terrible to contemplate, I guess we'll have to find out after we return from a word from our sponsor. Lost in Space has been brought to you by... 
Support for this nonprofit podcast is made in part by Monster Wax Trading Cards, limited edition producers of science fiction, horror, and monster trading cards since 1992. For more information, see the website at monsterwax.com. When we return from the break to start the final act, the Robinsons are still frozen in place at the edge of the alien site, as the fishman creature stands only a few yards away. The alien begins to gesture with his arms and angrily shout in an unintelligible grunting tongue. Unsure of what he's saying or how to respond, our castaways hold their tongues. Apparently frustrated by their lack of response, the alien abruptly points his finger which fires a short laser blast at the ground, right in front of our group. Our space family flinches, but they don't panic. Instead, Major West quick draws his weapon and looks ready to fire, but Marine begs him to hold his fire. The creature reacts with more irate grunts and growls. Penny cries, Mom, is it really? Really what? Or really who, Penny? Not wishing to answer yet, Marine turns to her husband. John... What is he saying? I can't blame her for asking. After all, the professor usually has all the answers, but in this case, he admits that he wishes he knew. Smith apparently thinks he knows the answer to Penny's question. Using his cane, he takes a few unsteady steps towards the creature, mumbling, Oh dear, oh dear, the poor boy. He's reversed himself beyond all recognition. That was a really cool line, you know, because Smith is suggesting Will has reversed his evolution all the way back past our mammal ancestors to our very first origins, the sea. Did you catch that? Hmm, maybe Dr. Smith's correct, but the camera gives us an extended close-up of the creature, and there's only a very vague resemblance of this scale-covered being to Will. As our resident monster aficionado, Kurt, give us your description and opinion of this one. Oh, wow. Well, he looked too big to be Will, but then again, maybe he grew as he changed. This alien resembled the creature of the Black Lagoon, except the creature had horizontal scales across his chest and stomach like a snake, which didn't really make a whole lot of sense if he swam rather than crawled on the ground. But this alien had uniform scales all over him instead. His head looked more like the Sleestack creature from the 1970s Saturday morning live action series Land of the Lost. Do you remember that one? Oh yeah, that's ex- yeah. That's exactly what Lisa called it, the Slee Stack. <laughs> yeah. That's funny. Well, I like that show overall, except for that insepid little monkey boy. Uh, yeah. Chaka. He looked like a, yeah, Chaka, Chaka. Chaka Khan. He looked like he looked like a mini me version of the beef jerky Sasquatch. Yes, exactly. Yeah. I was always hoping the the T-Rex would catch him and swallow <laughs> him or better yet chew him up into little pieces. I did dig the Sleestack monsters, though, and I thought the Lost in Space predecessor was a great costume, one of the best aliens Lost in Space ever had. The mask stuck to the face so that when the lips moved, you know, it actually looked like it was talking, plus all those scales. Mm -hmm. But unlike the Sleestack, it didn't have a horn on its head. What it did have was a large fin along the back of the top, which meant it couldn't possibly wear that telegraphic helmet that was inside the ship. Or did they think we forgot about that, huh? <laughs> uh uh-uh, no such luck. We remember. That is a good catch. I had completely dropped the ball on that one. Great. Yeah, there's no way you could wear that, <laughs> that helmet. <laughs> oh, that's funny. 
Yeah, I really liked the eyes. I know they were just probably, you know, smoked glass bubbles or whatever, but for some reason they just had that dead eye stare thing to them. They looked really strange. Yep. Yeah, they were all black, so mm-hmm. you couldn't see any pupils. It was like they looked everywhere, you know, simultaneously. The other thing that was kind of cool about it was that the mouth stuck so closely to the mouth of the mask that it didn't look like a mask. Exactly. You know, when he opened his mouth and it talked, it looked like he was mouthing the words. Mm-hmm. Unlike the dog face boy, you remember? Yeah. <laughs> the war of the robots. He just had the same expression and was speaking the king's English <laughs> perfectly. Right. You know? Well, it's funny because this guy doesn't really need to move his lips all that much because all he does is kind of Frankenstein grunts, you know. Uh-huh. Now, if you haven't seen this alien, he is really impressive. The scale-covered body is so much more impressive than the usual bear suit. It's not even funny, except, of course, that it kind of is. I think of all the universal monsters, the creature of the Black Lagoon was probably the most elaborate, popular costume they ever made. And, you know, that movie was filmed right down here at Wakulla Springs, just outside Tallahassee. And the guy who played the creature, Rico Browning, he actually lived on our block. In fact, he taught my older brother and sister how to swim. So talk about jealousy. My siblings got swimming lessons from the creature of the Black Lagoon, but I didn't. Oh, the pain, the pain. Wow. I ran into Rico Browning at one of those conventions, and I, I told him that. And he went, oh, yeah, 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 I remember that, Lee Avenue. That's, that was the road they lived on back then. That's awesome. You know, I knew the Wakulla Springs connection, but if you told me, I must have completely forgot that the guy that performed the Creature of Black Lagoon lived next door to you. That's unbelievable. I didn't know that until I was told it, and I can remember specifically when I was told it because me and my sister were watching the Creature of Black Lagoon, and the creature had just come out and grabbed one of the the natives by the face and ripped his face off with those claws and my mom had walked in on the television and he went oh it's little rico browning <laughs> and i was like what and then she told us you know that it was the neighbor and and yeah you know, he told you said brother and sister how to swim and all this time we're like why that like completely ruined the rest of the movie uh. for us you know not only was this guy not a monster but he was a teaching instructor mm. who taught her ugh. Oh, that's very cool. Yeah, we just watched The Creature of the Black Lagoon again the other night. Uh, I was inspired after watching this episode. It's a fun movie, and that's really cool. You have all those connections. Wild. Wild. Well, Smith might think he recognizes Will, but the fish man doesn't seem to recognize them. Wearing an expectant look, he asks, Don't you recognize me, Willie? It's Dr. Zachary Smith. Your loyal and longtime friend. Oh, words cannot express what I feel for you at this very moment, but I'm sure some will come to me presently. Uh, but in the meantime, have you any hopeful news for me? The creature licks his scaly lips as if searching for the right word in response, but after a pause, merely issues another short, threatening growl. Yeah! Unnerved, Granddaddy Zack withdraws and whimpers his way safely back to the Major's side. Oh, oh, oh. Well, John decides it's time to call the cavalry and shouts, Robot! Right on cue, B9 comes rolling to the rescue. Where has he been all this time? Uh-huh. As he glides into the clearing, the castaways make a path for their cybernetic comrade's arrival. He stops just a few feet in front of the creature, 
John instructs B-9 to translate, which he does. Where is my other vehicle? It was here. Where is my other vehicle? Thank goodness it's not Will. Then who is it? Who is it? It was here. It belongs to me. Translate message that it will return soon. It was taken by my son, Will, but not for long. Doblo, Mikba, Kasro, Flimza. The robot hears and obeys, speaking back in the alien's strange language, which, by the way, sounded a lot clearer than when Fishman replies with more growls. He sounded like he had marbles in his mouth, or, or maybe a fish hook. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I thought the robot's alien talk sounded like completely different language, you know. Like you said, it was like a Frankenstein monster, you know. But then the robot speaks like Michael Rennie in Day of the Earth Stood Still, you know. Back to Barata Dick Two, you know. Yeah. But then I remembered, you know, Dick Tufeld, he may not even have recorded these lines while seeing the dailies. It may have been recorded before, or they may have just sent him into a recording studio, and he may not have even heard what the other aliens sounded like. Mm-hmm. So if he had dailies, he may not have had sound to it. It may have just been visuals, because, you know, that's another step, and they were on very tight schedules. So he may have just been going off of the, the robot's blinking lights. Did they ever reference the exact procedure there in the Cushman books? I'm assuming he did, but I'm not sure about that. That'd be a good question. I'll try to dig and find an answer to that. I'm sure someone out there knows the answer to that, but yeah, good stuff. Well, the robot translates the creature's answer. I demand it now. I demand it now. He must give us a little time. The family looks on in apprehension, but the alien must sense Don's getting twitchy because out of nowhere. The creature swiftly fires his laser finger at the Major, this time neatly zapping the weapon right out of Don's hand. The attack causes Smith and West to flinch, and the ladies shriek in shock. Judy asks Don if he's all right. Yes, thankfully, his hand's just a little stunned. Yeah, that fishman must be a distant relative to our electric eel. Only with laser beams. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Intergalactic relations appear to be deteriorating because the fishman growls again, which B9 interprets. Silence. Apparently losing patience, the grouchy gillman lumbers over to our space family, starting with John and Marine. He pauses a few inches from each of our anxious castaways' faces. The Robinsons silently stand their ground, and despite more aggressive sounds and gestures, he refrains from assaulting them. Last to face the alien is Grandpa Zack, who pleads feebly, My dear sir, you see before you an unhappy creature who until a few short hours ago was in the full flower of his youth. Don't you realize he can't understand one word? He might hear the plea for pity in my voice. Grandmother! You are the king? Oh, yes. Until a little while ago, I was truly a monarch, a veritable emperor of a man. Apparently, Don's wrong. He can understand, because without waiting for B9 to translate, Fishman roars, (laughs) and despite the decrepit doctor's weakened protests, drags him across the clearing, away from the others. Back beside the robot and his equipment, the alien roughly forces Simpering Smith to sit down on the device's platform. 
Turning back to the robot, the alien shouts another commanding series of growls, which B-9 decodes, I wait, C-300. He goes by light velocity. He'll wait five minutes. Without waiting for a response, the creature kneels down on one knee and carefully positions a small transparent device in the sand. Yeah, now leave it to John to know <laughs> light velocity time. <laughs> he probably learned that system when he was a student at Know-It-All University. <laughs> the alien's clock is hysterical. It's basically a flattened glass turkey thermometer with two metal prongs at the bottom. You know, maybe yeah. you should stick that in Smith and see what it reads. It was just, <laughs> the whole thing was funny. But still kind of cool, you know? Uh, yeah, I thought it was kind of cool. But yeah, it was great, uh, John. For what he, he goes by light velocity. He'll wait five minutes. <laughs> uh. Well, the alien scans the empty blue sky for any signs of his missing property's return. But a quick cutaway shows nothing up there but a few scattered cirrus clouds. So the alien turns and silently glares back across the clearing at the rest of the family. Everyone's waiting on pens and needles for Will to return. When Judy nervously asks Don a pertinent question, what if Will isn't back in five minutes? He answers, he's got Smith as a hostage, I guess, our king. Forgive me for asking a serious question on Lost in Space, but why the hell would an alien who travels faster than the speed of light use a timepiece that operates off the speed of light? <laughs> You know, that's like using the one form of measure that will mess up every single time he travels. You know? uh, don't ask questions like that, Kurt. I'm starting to run out of answers. Well, speaking of time, it's running out for our space pioneers as a close-up shot of that alien turkey thermometer shows the mercury's rising fast, which made me think... Maybe Professor misinterpreted what C-300 meant. Maybe he's actually giving them until the temperature reaches 300 degrees Celsius. In which case, given the crazy orbit of pre-planets, they might have even less time. Or maybe he's waiting until C-3PO arrives. <laughs> actually, your theory makes more sense. He being a fish man on a desert planet, he could fry pretty fast if he isn't careful. I'm just saying. Oh, yeah. A fish out of water, as they say. Yep. Well, Judy's question must have John considering plan B. Don, if I can attract his attention, maybe you can work your way around behind him. I'll try. Robot, request alien's permission to examine his velocimeter. Understood? Affirmative. Kind friend, try to make this creature understand that I was speaking only figuratively when I referred to myself as a monarch. Negative. Computers preempted for more important processing. Nokia, Chimla, Horja. Reacting instantly to B9's request, the creature stands up and proudly shows the device to B9. Uh, yeah, you know, that was a kind of weird segment. Since when do hostage takers stop everything to show off their hardware just because one of the victims is curious about it? I mean, that'd be like saying, yeah, say Muhammad. I'm not questioning where you want to fly this jetliner, but I'm very curious about that box cutter device you're holding at my throat. Could you hold that out so that we can all examine it better? Oh, wow, that's nice, yeah. <laughs> Come on. Well, 
Well, with the diversion underway, John draws his pistol from its holster, and we can see Major West also has managed to sneak around to the far side of the space pod. But time must have truly expired because the alien growls angrily, throws the timer down, then grabs the panicking Smith, forcing him to his feet. Don's still undetected, but suddenly the sky's flooded with a blinding flash of light. We see space pod number one comes streaking back down from the stratosphere, which interrupts everything just in the nick of time. The Robinsons and the alien shield their eyes from the light and sand being blown up by the vehicle's retro rockets as it touches down. Again, we're not shown the craft's landing, just the Robinsons' awestruck reactions from across the way, as Don rejoins the group. I personally thought they should have had some smoke coming up, you know, from underneath those crafts. That would have helped a little bit, too. But It would. I can't be too hard on them for not showing the actual landing, because that would have been probably pretty expensive to pull off. That would have been very expensive, and it wasn't necessary. But, you know, a little hint to the action would have been nice. It would. And you probably wouldn't even have noticed it as much, but this was about, I think, the third time they pulled that tell-not-show trick. Still, right. it was artfully done. I thought it was handled well overall. Yeah, a smoke bomb. What can it cost? 50 cents. Come on, Irwin. Exactly. <laughs> Once the vehicle is touched down, we cut back to the wide master shot of the landing zone, now sporting two nearly identical space pods on either side of the alien teepee machine, with Dr. Smith still sitting down on its base. The music swells as the camera slowly tracks in on the recently arrived pod number one, which is on the other side of the relay station. Cutting back to the family, they're all wearing anxious expressions as the camera zooms in on Dad, who shouts out, Will, watch out, stay inside. But in a flash, the alien raises his arm, firing another quick laser beam at the pod's door. Don reacts by drawing his weapon, But John, who's already got his laser drawn, orders him to hold fire. They won't shoot at the creature unless they're sure they won't endanger Will. At that moment, the pod door swings open, revealing Will Robinson inside, thankfully looking just like he did before he left. The boy climbs out of the hatchway and leaps down to the ground. But before he can get his bearings, Dad shouts again, Will, be careful! But spotting Dr. Smith nearby, the boy walks over to speak with him. What are you doing here? Ah, Willie. I think I've got good news for you. Good news? Look there. He's going to punish you for battering his ship by abducting me. I'll be shanghaied to a terrible fate. Not if I can explain why I took it. Help me, Willie. Help me. I'll try. Summoning his courage to save Dr. Smith from that terrible fate, Will moves towards the scale-covered creature, who for the moment is behaving considerably calmer than before and appears to be studying the boy. The creature doesn't even growl. It just licks its scaly lips again as it listens. Standing within easy striking distance of the alien, Will speaks first. Hello there. We were wondering when you'd show up. I hope you're not angry because I borrowed your vehicle. Twice. 
the first time, I did it because I got carried away. And the second time, I did it for Dr. Smith. Yes, he did. It was for me. <laughs> I wanted to test out its revenue. It's your uh, Really? Uh, to see whether it could change him back. He wasn't always the way he is now. He never had this beard before he took a ride in your vehicle. I guess that makes three rides we took in all. The alien grows weary of Will's speech and makes a move for Smith, which causes the men to aim their weapons. Don, don't shoot! Maybe I can talk him out of it. Let him try. I hope you'll let Dr. Smith go. Because if you're thinking of taking him back to where you come from, wherever that is, and making him a slave or something, personally, I don't think it'll work. He's not much use when it comes to work anyway. And he can't live much longer. Oh, dear. Oh, dear. Unless you'd take him up for a ride in your vehicle and change him back. He'd be very grateful, and so would I. Oh, we would. We definitely would. Do you understand? Wait! Wait, what are you doing to him? But abruptly, the fishman takes Dr. Smith by the arm and hustles him over to his space pod. It's unclear what the creature's intentions are, and Will fears the worst, pleading in desperation to know where he's taking Smith and what the alien's doing with him. When he tries to intervene, the fishy fiend pushes the boy away from the vehicle. As he's being loaded onto the pod, Dr. Smith is in a state of utter panic, screaming for help. Near tears, Will cries out, Don't take him away! But he and the rest of our castaways stand by helplessly to prevent the alien from making off with his aged captive. Oh, uh, point, point of order, point of order. Uh, when you say the castaways stand helplessly to prevent the alien from taking Dr. Smith, are you including Don and John, who both have laser pistols and don't seem that interested in saving Smith now that Will is completely out of danger? Because we know Smith is least popular with Don and John, and I- I'm not judging them. I'm just curious. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. That is a good point. In agony, Will screams one last time, Dr. Smith, don't take him away. But it's no use, because next we hear the heartless sound of the pod's main thrusters firing. Then see one more time as a silvery streak of light shoots upward, slipping the planet's surly bonds into the vast black star-speckled reaches of multi-dimensional outer space. I always dig that animation scene, showing the spaceship leaving the preplanist globe into space. But it clearly looks like just one craft. Yet when we return to the family on the surface, all three spaceships are gone. So I guess it wasn't really worth $100 or so it would have cost to add two more streaks of recycled light, you know, on that film clip just to keep the sharpshooters at bay. But uh, just noticing these things. Yeah, just noticing that's cool. But I, I agree with you. I do like that animation. It's really cool. Yeah. Mm-hmm. The sound of the ship's rocket engine fades into the distance. Shaking off the shock, Marine rushes over to Will, followed by the rest of the family. Relieved that he's back, safe and sound, Mom grasps her son, calling, Will, 
Standing by the robot and the empty impression of the departed space pod left in the sand, the wide-eyed boy seems stunned by what's happened and pauses before he answers her sadly. I guess it didn't do much good talking to that alien. We'll never see Dr. Smith again. Mom doesn't have the heart to address the painful subject. Instead, as the scene ends, she gives him a warm hug and softly repeats, Oh, Will. Yeah, she did seem pretty upset. I guess she was really looking forward to changing the old man's bedpan. (laughs) Oh, boy. (laughs) (laughs) Well, in the last moments of this whimsical tale, we transition to a close-up of a homemade sign which the family has fashioned in loving memory of their reluctant stowaway and adopted family member. They made that so quickly, though, you wonder if they might have had it pre-made for just such an occasion. (laughs) A hopeful, hopeful holiday. Just in case, give them something to look forward to. The camera pulls back to reveal the entire Robinson family standing by the memorial in somber reflection. Judy laments, Oh, poor Dr. Smith. Maureen answers, All we can do is hope that no matter where he is, he'll survive. Everyone nods in agreement. Will says, maybe he'll be a brain like I was. Penny says, you mean you're not a brain anymore? Not half as much as Dad or Don, he says. The joke breaks the gloom, causing a few chuckles among the group. Professor Robinson says, well, there's not much more they can do there. Let's go back to camp. As they start to file out of the area, making their way back along the familiar sandy path, the stillness is broken by a familiar sound of firing retro rockets. The castaways stop and scan the heavens. Sure enough, they see the familiar sight of the space pod. Making its re-entry back through the planet's upper atmosphere. Everyone turns around and races back to the alien site. Before they make it there, we can hear the sound of the pod touching down. And just as quickly, Thrusters firing yet again. One last time, we're shown a silvery blur zooming over the cloud-covered peaks back into the black star-filled emptiness of outer space. By the time the Robinsons reach the familiar clearing, it appears just as empty as before. That is, except for the Smith Memorial marker. But the camera does another slow pull-out to reveal, standing directly in front of the sign, is none other than Dr. Zachary Smith. The delighted castaways are astonished at seeing him, and he's not only returned, but he's been restored to his old former, or should I say, young former state. There might be a white hair or two left on his head, but gone is the Rip Van Winkle mop and beard, and he's no longer stooped over like the hunchback of Notre Dame, and that makes everyone smile. Dr. Smith points his walking stick at the memorial sign and reads aloud, In memory of Dr. Zachary Smith, who was transferred from this point to the vast unknown of the sixth dimension, gone but not forgotten. Pausing for a moment of reflection, Smith then swiftly tears off his nursing home garb, knocks over the dreadful sign, and declares indignantly, Indeed, and indeed, and indeed. 
You, you got to love that diplomatic language of that memorial. It doesn't say in loving memory or we'll always miss him. It says gone but not forgotten. <laughs> you could tell this sign was written by committee and Don had to sign off on it. <laughs> yeah, I can hear him now. Yeah, that's for sure. I'll never forget Smith. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's true. <laughs> I love it. Uh. Well, Will exclaims, he did what I asked. Smiling ear to ear, the doctor answers, To paraphrase the 19th century master of the written word, the report of my disappearance seems to have been greatly exaggerated. John says with a chuckle, Well, I think I can guess where he's going, but uh, I still don't know exactly why he came here. Pulling out a small alien scroll, the doctor says, This could probably explain it, if I could understand it. Will says, The robot might know. Beaming, Smith says, Splendid idea. Stepping over to his mechanized mate, Smith thinks aloud. Of course it could be the key to his city for honored guest. Translate it for us, my dear friend. I bid you farewell. Planet is unsuitable as extragalactic relay station. From the brave youth, I have learned your speech. I knocked off some of the bearded one's years to please the youth. Smith's face turns from satisfied to sour as the robot finishes. He sure is a dandy. That causes laughter all around. You know, they're still trying to explain away how the alien knew enough English to understand what Will was saying to him. He learned speech from the boy in just a few sentences? I guess, you know, maybe fish really do travel in schools. But the message does confirm what the alien was doing with those three ships. He said he was trying to set up an extragalactic relay station, so kudos for that. On the other hand, if we had trouble believing that the robot could learn and translate alien tongue with just a few angry alien outbursts, how the heck are we to believe that he could suddenly read the alien's language when there's no Rosetta Stone or any other prior examples of that language? That just doesn't make any sense at all. (laughs) Indeed. Tossing the scroll to the ground, Smith bellows. Of all the ungenerous ingrates. Patting his own neck and cheeks, the doctor scowls. You could have made me a few years younger than I was before. Major West laughs out loud. Smith, you haven't changed a bit. The Robinsons depart the area, leaving Dr. Smith alone for a moment with his favorite punching bag. When the others are out of earshot, he turns his irritated gaze back to the robot and warns. As for you, sir, I'll attend to you later then marches out of the frame, leaving B-9 alone, but once more getting the last laugh. (laughs) Before we take a minute to discuss the cliffhanger, Kurt, give us your thoughts on A Change of Space. Well, I enjoyed it. It didn't have much of a subplot. It was basically Will turning into more of a genius than he already was, and Smith turning into an elderly man but still remaining his old manipulative self. But it really says something about Smith's resourcefulness, I thought, that even when he's robbed of his mobility and turned into a shadow of his former self, he immediately turns that weakness into a strength to play off the sympathy and manipulate not only Will but Major West as well. Are you going to deny me my one less pleasure? (laughs) I I thought the three new spaceships were really impressive, even though two of them were virtually identical. And that alien costume was really top-notch, even though it was a recycled monster from Forge of the Bottom of the Sea. It was also kind of absurd to have a fish monster in space. I mean, given that there was no water in the capsule. I mean, 
the reptile scales were there, but those large fins made it clear that, you know, at some time or another, this thing had to live off of water. But I, I really enjoyed Will's interdimensional space flight. They did a lot with very little there. So overall, this is one of those episodes you enjoy a lot the first time, even though maybe the second and third time you wouldn't really be that attracted to it. So very worthwhile, but not worth a while longer than absolutely necessary. It was it was fun the first time. The repeat viewings are probably not there like in some of the other episodes. Yeah, overall, I'm very positive about this episode. It's one that I do remember quite a lot. And probably what I remembered most from it were the standout performances of Bill Mooney going through that transformation. I thought it was neat to see him acting completely different than he normally does, even though he was a complete pain in the butt when he <laughs> when he turned into a super genius. But it was kind of nice to see how the character changed after Dr. Smith came back as an old man. He seemed to uh, He seemed to lose some of that conceit. And speaking of Jonathan Harris, I really enjoyed his performance. I just love that old man, <laughs> that old man Smith act, even though a lot of the critics out there complain that Harris's performance was over the top and he was hamming it up. But I guess I'm just a sucker for that stuff because I found myself giggling and sm- smiling all through that. It just seemed like it was a lot of fun and it must have been a lot of fun for him to perform. But uh, I've always had a soft spot for that performance, so I'm not complaining. I kind of would have liked to have seen the alternative version. You know, it really would have been pretty sad to see him play that seriously. Exactly, yeah. And it might have been very, you know, in a way, scary. I don't know. But you know how in that episode where Smith was so generous towards wanting to give his own life for Penny, how that really tugged at our heartstrings? All that glitters. Yeah. This one... When you stop and think about it, it's very revealing about Don. You know, Don is such a, let's say it, he's an asshole uh, to Smith. But when Smith is down and completely out, Don is suddenly magnanimous. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and I was impressed by that. No, I liked that part of the character. We've seen some glimmers of that before, but like you say, most of the time he can be a real jerk to Smith. Although most of the time it's deserved. <laughs> But look, you know, this episode, when the chips were down, he showed some real compassion. And let's give him credit. He hasn't thrown Dr. Smith through the airlock yet. <laughs> so I don't have too much else to add. I'll just say I was pretty impressed with your knowledge of the uh, dynamics of speed of light travel and quantum physics and all that kind of stuff. I had forgotten half of that. I own it all to Google. <laughs> <laughs> Well, I will just mention real quickly, if you're interested in this kind of stuff, I have a friend, Chuck Fields, who does a nifty podcast called Your Online Coffee Break. And he had a guest who's a real astrophysicist that did her PhD dissertation on warp speed. She's also a consultant for several contemporary sci-fi TV series. So in Chuck's short and sweet 15-minute show, she runs down all the different possibilities for cheating Einstein and making future interstellar travel possible. I'll link to that episode in our show notes, so check that out. Uh-huh. Oh, that that will be fun. Now, can I mention one of the important characters in this story that got very little attention during most of the episode, but who served a vital role as translator, and that was the robot. He didn't seem to do very much, but what he did was essential. And that sort of sums up how Jonathan Harris felt about the robot overall. Let me read to you three short paragraphs that Harris related in Lost in Space Forever, the book by Joel Eisner and Barry Megan. In it, he said, I loved having that robot to play with. It was a gift (laughs) from heaven, and I developed our relationship, and it turned out wonderfully. But 
Bobby May was a strange young man. He learned all the lines which were later recorded by announcer Dick Tufeld at the recording studio. He is a very unfortunate young man with delusions of grandeur. <laughs> I was in a way grateful that he learned all the lines because it gave me something to play off of, but I guess he had to do that. But he was the unmitigated, unquestioned, unconditional pain in the <laughs> ass all the time, to the point that I had to bar him from my dressing room. <laughs> <laughs> Isn't that so Smithian? Uh, that book has a lot of revealing insights about the show, not all of them flattering or intentional. Even the cover has a cast photo of the space family posing on board the Jupiter 2, and everyone is all smiles. But if you look really close, you can see that John Robinson has his hand firmly around the shapely west of blonde and vivacious Judy, but he isn't even touching his wig-wearing wife next to him at all. <laughs> Uh, so it's just it's delightful from yeah, that standpoint. I, that book has a lot of great stories in it, and uh, I do like that one. Boy, that Jonathan Harris was something else. <laughs> I think that they had that interview with him a lot closer to when the show was made, because later on he seemed to you know kind of uh, uh, warm up to Bob. I think they a did, and you know it was nice to see Bob get the uh, credit he didn't get when the show was on the air. But you you could kind of understand where Jonathan Harris was coming from too, though, because the robot was getting in all the big scenes, and I mean he was basically a bigger star than Guy Williams was. Eventually, yeah, yeah. And, and so May, he how weird that must have been. You were famous. You were like the most famous actor that nobody mm-hmm. knew. Because remember, they didn't even have his credit on the show. It didn't say who played the robot. That's what I mean. Yeah. So he was famous, but not famous. It was the invisible star. Well, he really loved that role, and he brought it to life with all of his little little head moves and bubble popping ups and downs and arms waving. I I think it had to be a real talent to make that, uh, pull that off the way he did. But anyway, good stuff. That's great. Well, before we finish, we see the cliffhanger at the end of this episode. The scene starts with Dr. Smith leading Professor Robinson to the entrance of a cave. Turns out they're there to recover a laser pistol that somehow got abandoned by Smith inside the treacherous cavern. Uneasy about continuing the search for the missing weapon, Dr. Smith insists that the pistol is well beyond recovery. But the professor isn't giving up that easy, and insists they give it a try. So despite Smith's obvious reluctance, the men enter the cave and arrive at a rocky ledge overlooking its lower level. Using his flashlight, Smith spots the missing laser pistol far down below and points it out to the professor. Snaking one end of the rope around a handy rock, John instructs the good doctor to hang on to it and pay out the line gradually as he repels deeper down into the cave. But before he reaches the bottom, the area is struck by a severe planet quake. The professor shouts for Smith to pull him back up, But instead, the intensifying seismic shocks cause Dr. Smith to lose his nerve and his end of the rope, leaving John Robinson plummeting helplessly down into the bowels of that subterranean chamber. Oh no! But before we see if the professor survives this downturn, the freeze frame slides in to remind us that this story is to be continued next week. Same time, same channel. You know what they say, Kurt, what goes up must come down. But this is one case where I hope the opposite is true. 
Yeah, well, uh, John tends to be pretty diplomatic with Smith when the rest of the family or even Don is around. But when they're alone together, John can get really, really pissed off at him. He tells Smith in this scene he should wring his neck and calls him out for being a coward. So it's a good thing they're not back on Earth or Smith might have, you know, had him arrested for verbal assault or mental abuse. But uh, (laughs) we don't know if John's even going to make it that far. We'll have to see next week. Stay tuned. Uh Uh-huh. Well, folks, that wraps up this episode of Alpha Control. Join us again next time when we will be reviewing the 29th episode of Lost in Space, titled Follow the Leader. Until then, take care, and we'll talk to you soon. Good night, Kurt. Good night, Lane. Thanks, fellow Galactic Castaways, for listening to the Alpha Control Podcast. Please leave your comments or questions on our Facebook page, Twitter, or email us at alphacontrolpodcast at gmail.com. Subscribe to the podcast via libsyn.com. That's L-I-B-S-Y-N dot com. Or through iTunes. If you like the show, please leave us a review as well. Thanks again, and we'll see you next week. Same time. Same channel.